We're outside the travel agency, a cannabis store that's got everyone buzzing. When I walked in, I felt like I was in the elite of the skies, like I'm about to get elevated and lifted in the best way. Got the important essential things. I need sleep, so tinctures, salves to relax my body, right? The best New York flowers. Come down to the travel agency and see for yourself. For use only by adults age 21 and older. Keep out of reach of children and pets. In case of accidental ingestion or overconsumption, contact the National Poison Control Center. Consume responsibly. Dan has heard the whale hunting presentation. This will be his fifth time. <laughs> sure. You'd think I'd be able to capture a whale, right? <laughs> but, but, you, but, you, but you've been surrounded by success. You've seen all these other people yeah. using techniques, and they've been successful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was that. That was his big issue about a year ago, right, Lee? Must be a processor issue. Yes. Okay. Um, as a speaker and leading coach with the sales consultancy Hunt Big Sales, Tim C.O.C. specializes in reconstructing and optimizing sales processes throughout the country. He coaches corporate clients and their sales teams on how to implement the Hunt Big Sales process that he credits for his own personal sales portfolio, which totals more than $2 billion, that's with a B, worldwide. He also leads the company's new workshop series, Getting the Most from Current Accounts, in which he discusses the top 10 reasons companies get stuck on their way to maximizing revenue opportunities and offers a step-by-step -step process for getting more from existing clients. In addition to coaching, Tim is an international speaker and published author on CEO leadership, sales, and marketing. He has participated in hundreds of interviews about issues related to federal, state, and international legislation and regulation of direct marketing. He has appeared on national news programs and networks including Hardball with Chris Matthews, The O'Reilly Factor, Crossfire, Fox News, CNN, CNBC, NBC, ABC, and many others. Tim is also a monthly columnist for Customer Interaction Solutions. Please welcome to Pittsburgh, Tim Searcy. I occasionally hear that, and I always think to myself, I wish I was that cool. <laughs> um, it's kind of strange. Dan and I have now seen each other, and I've, I, he walks in the room, and I'm like, dude, why are you here? <laughs> At some point in time, stop going to meetings and go sell somebody. You know? <laughs> but we need a backup in case he dropped dead. <laughs> well, I don't think he suffers from an ID10T. Who's my technology people? Who are the technology folks here? Don't I have a couple? Yeah. You know what an ID10T problem is? You don't know? Oh, wow. Well, an ID10T problem, when I was younger in this business, um, I had the network services department come out and talk to me because I had something wrong with my PC. And they called down to the, down to the mainframe room, because this was many years ago, and they said, sorry, we've got an ID10T problem here. And I said, oh, what's an ID10T problem? And, I had to be fairly high up in the company, so it wasn't going to be a good idea for him to insult me. He goes, I don't think you really want to know. And I said, no, I really do. I really want to know. He goes, okay, here's what an ID10T problem is. ID10T. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Um, <laughs> I had to, I had where's, to my, where's my form to fill out? <laughs> I said that you didn't. I called the message member an idiot. <laughs> I said that you didn't. But I, but I will tell you that you're a lousy listener. <laughs> okay, now remember, okay, from here on, right, this is a monologue, mostly. <laughs> just, no, just, no. Okay. Um, Guys, we're going to talk a lot today about how to land big sales. And one of the biggest things to understand is who is your whale 
and how do you keep track of your whales and what's a good whale for you versus a bad whale for you and how do you approach whales and talk to whales in language that they understand and that they care about so that you can secure big deals with them. So that's the whole purpose of today. If that's not what you are here for, you're probably in the wrong place. Okay, But that's what we're going to talk about. And we're going to give you a pretty clean-cut set of uh, suggestions, ways to talk, ways to communicate, etc., that you can use and you can practically uh, have value with. I'm going to give you a workbook. You're going to use every page. Okay. Um, I've had engineers who write on the bottom of the page, didn't use every page. And so since then, I've always said, we may not use every page. We're actually going to use some things that are not in the book. So, yeah, it's, it's like a cross-eyed discus thrower. I mean, I, I, I don't set any records, but I'm going to keep you looking, right? Yeah, I'll let you know when they're funny, too. Okay, that was, that was funny. Okay, that was good. Super. Um, I want to start with the, the premise of the metaphor of whale hunting, because whale hunting is is core to what we do. And any metaphor could be beaten to death, and um, I will attempt to do that today several times. But it does give us a good construct and thought process around which to engage each other with common language. So I want you to take a mental journey with me back to the great northwest up on the coast of Alaska about 1,500 years ago. Imagine that we're in a, a hut, a lodge. It's about 50 feet long and about 20 feet wide. There's just pinprick holes in the ceiling to let the smoke out from the whale oil lamps. There's no windows, no doors, just a tunnel that comes up in the center. And the entire village is waiting, waiting for whale sign. The sign that the whales have migrated, like they do every year, up from Baja, and then we can go hunt them. So we've sent scouts out since early in the morning until after dark, and they're looking for the sign of the whale. See, whales, they're not like the Pacific Life commercial where you see that big breaching whale. That that picture was shot in Hawaii. Okay? It was not shot in Alaska. Because at this time of year, in the late spring, it's still very cold. It's maybe 10 degrees outside. The water's 34 degrees. It's cloudy all the time. The clouds are gray. The water reflects the clouds. So what color is it? Gray. gray. This will be the participation part. It will be Great, great, yeah, exactly. There's a meteorological effect created when you have 34 degree water and 10 degree air called fog. What color is it? Gray. Gray. And what color are whales? Gray. Yeah, they're not that easy to see, to be honest. It's a needle in a stack of needles. Even as big as it is, the whale is not easy for us to find. We have to listen for the sound of the flap of a fluke. We have to look at the possibility of the fish that are being chased by the birds that migrate ahead of the whales. When we have sign, though, the seven-year-old boy comes and crawls through the tunnel up into the center of the room and says, I have whale sign. Now, the chief has to make a decision at that point. Do we go hunt the whales or don't we? Which can't seem kind of stupid. I mean, if we've been sitting there for a week or so waiting for the whale sign, why would a chief make a decision not to hunt whales? Well, sometimes it's not the right time. In this particular case, what you'll find out is villages are good at one of two things. You're either really good at hunting whales or you're really good at raiding villages while the men are out hunting whales. So what the chief has to be aware of is the surroundings and the amount of risk that they're willing to assume. But assuming that we're going to, everybody runs down to the coast. And people get on boats called umyaks. It's a great word. It's a great morning word. It's a word that's going to get you right here. So I want you to say after me, one, two, three, umyaks. Okay? One, two, three, umyaks. Right. Lumiak's 32 feet long, it's narrow, it's sealskin lined, uh, it's watertight, it's been blessed with fresh water. At the front of the boat stands the harpooner. He owns the boat and all the tackle. You can only be a harpooner if the chief says you can be a harpooner. 
At the back of the boat is the shaman. The shaman is the wise man. The shaman is the person who has survived the most hunts. See, hunting whales is very dangerous. Boats go out, don't come back. Boats go out full, come back half full. David's new nickname is Hillbilly. Okay. Um, I'm used to banjo first thing in the morning, but that's good. So, as I was saying, I do the same Yeah, yeah, I could. Yeah, calls me an ID tends you. So, it's all right. It's all right. I play for scores. Um, so anyway, as, as I was saying, and at the back is the shaman. The shaman sings the songs calm the waters, he chants the chants to call forth the whales. The shaman tells us what to do when we don't know what to do. Because they're the person who's lived. In between, we have six oarsmen. Now, the oarsmen do more than just row. See, we're going to be out on this boat for three, maybe four weeks on the open water, in the cold, hunting whales. So we need to get fish and fresh water and remove waste and take care of our tackle. So we've got a boat of eight people. They go out to hunt the whale. Now, the whale is huge. It is hard to imagine how big a whale is. A lot of people can't think of it because they think of the dinosaur as being really big, right? The whale is the biggest dinosaur that ever existed, bigger than any other. You could put 10 bull elephants inside of a whale. It's 100,000 pounds. It's 60 feet long. Its mouth is about as big as that screen. We're 3,500 pounds all in, and we're going to go hunt that. So, whales don't just come up alongside the boat, hang out. It's cold. They only come up to exhale and then inhale, and then they go back into the water. Water's 34, air's 10. Makes a lot of sense, right? So the harpooner has to gauge where's the whale going? How can we track alongside it? Ultimately, can we get up to the side of the whale? And when that happens, he takes a 60-pound harpoon, sharp tip with hemp wrapped around it, jumps on the back of the whale, and drives the harpoon as deep into the whale as physically possible. What do you think he does next? Jumps up. See, this is a good group. This is, this is smart, because I was in a group recently, and their answer was, hang on. That's not good. <laughs> <laughs> hang on is a bad, bad decision. Right. Well, it's exactly right. You're, you're exactly right. That's what he's going to do, right? The whale's going to go down two, three hundred feet, He's going to hang out for a couple hours, and when he comes up, who do you think he wants to talk to? <laughs> Whoever put the stick in his back. <laughs> Whales have a nasty habit of coming up right under the middle of a boat and breaking it in half. That's just the way it is. It's, it's rough business. And once you've gotten the whale, you know they don't just roll over and say, got me, you're right, stick in the back one time. No, we're going to do this for two to three days. In and out of the darkness, the fog, the ice flows, with the whale trying to kill us as we're trying to kill it. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? <laughs> At the end of this, the whale comes to the surface to expire. And like most mammals, he opens his mouth. Anybody see a problem with that? You, 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 you can say out loud, Paul. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Are you concerned, Paul, there's a price for participation? <laughs> So what, what's the problem? Well, for one thing, he opens his mouth and might sink. Yeah, fill back up with water, mm -hmm. go to the bottom. If we're tied to him, we go with him. If we cut the line, we get to start over. Right. Wasn't that fun? So 
Tom and I believe, and it's not in any of the stories, but we, we always smile about this. We, we believe it's got to be the guy who's dating the uh, chief's daughter. Because somebody has to climb over the side of the boat, get in the ocean, and sew the mouth of the whale shut. Yeah, that's the ugly job, isn't it? <laughs> that's the ugly job. And then we got to get the whale back. Because we just closed the big hole where the gases would go out because the organic being started to decompose. And if we don't get it back to shore soon enough, he's going to erupt, at which point he's going to sink. Please see previous comments, right? All bad stuff. Have you ever had a deal that was ADD? All but done. I mean, you had it sewn shut. You had it all tied up. And somehow, somebody came in and cut your line. You ever had that happen to you? Right at the very end. See, the difference between us and this story is other boats don't hunt whales that we're hunting. But in our life, there's always a set of boats hunting that whale. It's whoever owned the whale to begin with. They certainly don't want to give it up. And others, if they smell blood in the water, they just assume wait till the end. Till everything's been done. All the hard work's been put together. And then they come in and they do what? Well, they, they, cut the they cut the price. They make promises they weren't willing to make before. And you have now done everything that you can. you got nothing left to give them. So the person who played the least at the end comes in and takes the prize. Drives you crazy, doesn't it? Drives you crazy. It drives me crazy. I think it's wrong. It's not fair. You know, salespeople, that's one of my favorite things. You know, what are they? Oh, they cheated. Well, really, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't realize that the box came with rules, right? <laughs> you can't go with a lower price. Oops, you know, who knew? We get the whale back to the pardon? You're just living your life knowing what's going on. I'm sorry, I, I know what happens. You start to think about the last one where somebody came in and, right, right there at the end. We've got to get the whale back to shore, and we've got to harvest that whale in a hurry. So we use the tide because... I don't know if I've got engineers. Anybody engineer in the room by training? Okay, well, with only one, we can go faster. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you look at the physics of it, you're 3,500 pounds all in, he's 100,000 pounds. You're not going to drag him. And he's not buoyant enough that you're going to push him. So consequently, you have to use the tide. You have to lever off of icebergs to get him there. Hopefully, you've placed the harpoon correctly so that as he's come up, he's turning towards shore. This is the only way that you're going to get the whale back in time. Now, I always say to people, you know, they didn't get this right the first time. Right? This isn't one of those things where, you know, one guy said, you know what we need? We need a shaman. Right? We never had one, but we need one. We need a harpoon, and we need a 60-pound harpoon, not a 40-pound harpoon. Uh, we're going to need a boat that's 32 feet long. I mean, look, how did this probably start? Two guys drinking beer, sitting on the shore. Whale comes up and they say, you know, we can get one of them. They go out in the boat. One of them comes back, right? So, you know, next year I'm going to do that different, right? They just just trial and error. They just improve the process until they get to the point that they can actually capture a whale. But when they get back, everybody harvests the whale. They take the skin. They take the blubber. They take the meat. They take everything except for the head. The head they cut off. And the harpooner and the shaman row back out into deep water. They say a prayer, and they redeposit the head into the ocean. See, they want that whale to reincarnate next year. It's not prey or a victim. The whale is a gift. It's a gift from the gods. And so they want it to come back so they can hunt it again. 
See, a whale will feed a village for an entire year. A whale will feed a village for an entire year. There's over a thousand songs in the Inuit culture about whale hunting, and in every single song, people die. Sometimes whole villages die in a bad season. So why do they do it? Because there's over a thousand songs about starvation as well. They hunt whales because it's the only way to survive and thrive in a truly harsh environment. And that's what we're in right now, a truly harsh environment. So we got to go hunt whales. So, please, and please, try not to read ahead as much as you can. It won't help you very much, but I can't stop you. I want to crosswalk quickly the language to our business. Who's the chief in the story? If I, was, if I was to translate this to your business, who's the chief in the story? CEO. Who's the shaman? Sales my board. Yeah, head of sales. Right. Oh. <laughs> no, 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 no. I take no. it all back. No. I take yeah. it all back. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't say it. Yeah, I, my grandma no. was somebody who said finance. Like, I was like, oh, really? The chief no officer. They're going to be coaching? Really? That's a great idea. Um, I heard about the... Uh, Oh, the IPCs yesterday. The IPCs. I've never heard about it before. The impediment to progress consolidators, or no, excuse me, impediment to process progress coordinators, right? Finance, quality, you know, things like that. Okay. Who is the harpooner? Salesperson. Yeah, salesperson. Who are the They're your subject matter experts. Right? When you hunt big deals, do you have to take a team with you often? Yes, yes. Yeah, because why? Because they've got one. We feel obligated, you know? If they have seven people show up on the field, we think we should have seven people show up on the field. Right? We're going to talk about that a little bit later, but you're going to have to take people who can talk to those people. Right? What's the harpoon? It's your message. It's your message. And to an extent, yeah, it's your hook. It's, your, it's, it's what causes them to say, you've earned the right to ride the whale. Okay. What's the whale? Well, what kinds of whales are there in the ocean? Blue whales. What else? Gray whales. Killer whales. Killer whales. Right whales. Right whales. Very good. Usually when I have an all-guy group, I get a sperm whale. No sperm whale today? Okay. All right. What's the difference between a killer whale from any other whale other than it's not actually a whale? It's a carnivore. Uh-huh. It kills other whales. It's other whales. You know how it does it? It bumps them. Holds them down until they have a heart attack or they suffocate. Now, have you ever had a killer whale as a client? <laughs> yes. A client that was big, held you down, yes. suffocates you, causes your people to lose their mind, where ultimately their answer is, if you'll just fire that client, I'll work twice as hard to get another one because I can't stand working with that person one more minute. Can I get an amen? Amen? Amen. 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 All right. So it's not enough just to have the big prospect. 
They have to have the right prospect. Because in the case of a killer whale, if you knew now what you did, if you knew then what you only know now, would you have brought them on as a client? <coughs> Maybe. But if you did, would you have brought them on the same way? Would you have set different rules? Would you have contracted differently? The answer is, is nobody wants the killer whale, even if it's a whale. At the end of the day, it's not, it's not productive or healthy for your organization. So if you could have figured out who they were before you started, you could have made better decisions about what to do with them. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Now, I'm going to do something I haven't done in probably 100 business presentations, which is I'm going to start at the back of the bus. Actually, I'm going to start at the front, and then we're going to go to the back. But we're going to, do, we're going to go in a different order than this is, this is done, because I get bored. No, because I have an opinion that says that there might be a different way to take a look at this that would be more productive for you. So I'd like you to turn to page three. I want to talk about what whale hunting is and what it isn't. What it is and what it isn't. We look at whale hunting as going into nine specific phases in three groupings, scout, hunt, and harvest. Scouting, the blue circle, the blue circle has three components to it. Knowing your whale, seeking your whale, and, harp and uh, harpooning your whale. Knowing your whale is figuring out what the heck you want to be selling. Who do you want to talk to? Seeking your whale is the process of going to market and identifying an opportunity. Harpooning is the process of engaging with the prospect where they have money, you're talking to the decision maker, and you know that you want to probably do something with them. Those three criteria, oh, and time. Those four criteria. Scouting is a marketing and sales function when it comes to whales. The next group is, is hunting. Now, harpooning has just earned you the right to pitch and bid for legitimate business. That's all harpooning has done. Now, when it comes time to hunting the whale, we hunt as a village. We hunt as a village. So riding the whale is the process of going through their process of how they purchase. Capturing the whale is the means by which you gather their information and you create the good idea to great idea that will cause them to want to work with you and you understand their needs. Sewing the mouth shut is turning that into a proposal and a contract. Then we have to harvest. This function, the hunt, is done by the boat. So you have many people engaged in this. The final is harvesting. Harvesting, we have to beach the whale, honor the whale, and celebrate the whale. We won't spend time on this today because this is really a, a whole other session that we do, but it's important to remember that beaching the whale is the onboarding process that you use to get them started properly in your firm. Honoring the whale is the first 90 days where you are at probably the greatest risk that you'll ever be at is in the first 90 days because you're both looking at each other like porcupines mating, right? Very carefully, trying to make certain that they've made, a right, made the right decision. And celebrating the whale is having earned the right through honoring to come back and ask them for more. How many people here believe that their clients are buying everything that they should from them? I find that in working with Vistage groups, 
and with other CEOs. Most people will tell you, if we were allowed to sell everything that we can sell, all the stuff that we have now, plus allowed to sell into the other departments or divisions inside of the firms that we work with, we wouldn't need any new business for several years. We could double the size of our company just expanding our relationships inside of our current client base. Does that make sense? It's a challenge. I have no argument with that. As a matter of fact, that's what the other session that we do for Vistage is, is how to grow your current client base. But celebrating the whale is actually the process of going and asking for the rest. So those are the nine phases. What I want you to know about the nine phases that's important is that only the first three phases are really driven exclusively by the harpooner. Out of nine things that have to go on, only a third of them is sales completely responsible for. The boat takes over when it comes time for the hunt. Many organizations like to wait till the very end to get their salespeople to get the rest of the team. The problem is, when do you need the information to be able to make good judgments? Before then. Yeah, way before then. You know what the four ugliest words you can hear out of a salesman's mouth and it's not, I lost the deal? It could be huge. Oh, it could be huge. It could be the next really big one. You ever had a salesperson tell you it could be huge? Do you get excited? Do you really? Oh, Paul, you're so naive. Really? Come on. Santa Claus? Easter Bunny? Good stuff? Yes, good stuff. All right. All right. Fair enough. I appreciate that, honestly. There's, there's just something healthy about, about being optimistic. And you know what? I would work in an organization where the CEO was pleased to hear we have something huge on the line. The vast majority of them, though, start doing what? Asking questions. Asking lots and lots and lots and lots of questions. Do you ask a lot of questions when your CEO or when your, when your salesperson says it could be huge? Now, why? Why do you ask so many questions? You've heard it before. You've both been broken a few times. Yeah. You have trust issues. Right. right. You have trust issues, right? It's rarely true. Well, isn't that the truth? Yeah. 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 I always like the ones that kind of start with, now did you ask them about terms? You know right now that we've just had finance come through and say that we have to make the term. We had to move from 45 to 30 days. You, did talk, you didn't talk about that. No. Now you know we've been having delays in getting parts from China, right? And so that we're going to have to do a backlog right now for any new deals to come on, which means that basically the next delivery can't be until about this. You told them that, right? No, no, you didn't even talk. You have these? Now, let me ask you a question. Do your questions change very much? Not really. Are they, do they suffer from an ID10T problem? No, come on. They don't. They're smart people. They're commissioned salespeople. The problem is that a salesperson's like a one-eyed dog in a butcher shop. Okay? Right? Look, that's just funny, Lee. I don't care who you are. On the inside. On the inside. On the inside. All right. I pulled the muscle for that. I don't think the won't work on break. What? He didn't hear that one before he laughed. It's still funny. Yeah, exactly. We're kidding? Yeah. I'm consistent? God, that's great. I have like one tape. I play it and it just here it comes. So problem with the one-eyed dog in the butcher shop, everything looks good and we don't know where to start. Okay? Salespeople are not trained to say no. 
And their great fear is, look, if you had a perfect world, you want all the information right now as you're making a decision. If this is time and this is information, this is what you want. Correct? The salesperson wants to start here. So what do they do? They tell you it could be huge. To do what? Gain your interest. See, the hardest sale they're going to make inside your building, not outside your building. And they know that. This isn't their first rodeo. So they try to get you excited so that you'll come on the journey with them. The idea being is that over time, as we gather information, you become as invested in the deal as they do. So consequently, when we get to the point in time where it's time to commit an unnatural act, give terms we wouldn't normally give, make concessions that we wouldn't normally provide, you're as excited as, you, as they are. And your answer is, it could be huge. That's the goal of a salesperson, is to give you enough information to stay on the line, but not so much information you can say no. And it doesn't make us bad people. Okay? I've committed this sin. I intend to commit it again. Okay? Why? Because if you let me, why wouldn't I? Exactly what's the downside to me to get you invested in the big deal? None. Unless you have to cut, cut your commission. I have something close to an allergic reaction to the idea of cutting people's commissions. Let me tell you why. Right? Salespeople are like little Rain Man computers. Right? If you want to take a very complicated statistical problem and have them do it in their head, just tell them it's a commission. Okay? And out will pop a number, without a doubt. It'll be perfectly correct because we can do that. But here's, so we can do complicated math, but here's simple math we can't get. Uh, every $1 million deal is 4%, and a $10 million deal is 2%. So what am I going to go spend my time on? $1 million deals. Now, oh, by the way, you can draw. I, I love watching finance people try to play logic with simple math with salespeople. You know, it's like watching a penguin talk to a tiger. I mean, it just makes no sense. Because for them, all they hear is 4%. 4%, 2%, which is basically the definition of you're going to screw me. <laughs> That's it. That's all they can think about. So I have an allergy to cutting commission. My answer would be, instead, let's get them incentivized. Let's stop asking them to go ask these questions. That's not their job. Their job is to sink the harpoon. What's the harpoon say? Do they have money? Do they want what we sell? Do we want to sell it to them? And are they going to want it pretty soon? If they can answer those four questions, they've done what they're supposed to do. Now you bring the boat in. The boat's job is to get the information to decide how to bid. The boat's job is to figure out what the big idea is going to be. Because honestly, the salespeople can't be expected to do that. They can participate. They can herd. They can get all the people gathered. They can plan the event. But honestly, do, do the salespeople always come up with a big idea? If they do, operationally, you've got problems. Because your operational people should be the ones who provide that. So we're going to start with the end in mind. So I want you to turn all the way to the back of the book to page 21. <clears throat> now this is an experiment. So we'll see how this goes.
been very successful managing salespeople from a very young age. And most of it is because I got lucky and stumbled across this approach. So when I started running sales for, for West Teleservices, I was about 22. And I went out and hired sales staff. I was VP of sales. And I uh, went out and hired sales staff. And my criteria were pretty simple. You had to be over 40 because I had looking young licked. We didn't need anybody else who looked young. Right? We, we needed somebody who looked like they knew what the heck was going on. I mean, I knew I looked like I was a kid on a skateboard coming to school, you know, work every day. So that was no good. Two, you had to be from outside of our industry. Because I didn't want to explain, this is why we don't do it the way that you did at the last place you were. Three, you had to have had my job and decide that you want to be an individual contributor. Because at that point I was pretty insecure and I didn't want anybody looking over my shoulder trying to get my, trying to get my chair. So you had to be money motivated. And fourth, you had to be a process salesperson. What I refer to as ham and agger. Didn't need rock stars. Because it was my belief that rock stars... Rock stars have a, a nasty habit. They come in from out of town, they get real drunk, they trash their hotel room, and they leave, right? I didn't need that. And by the way, metaphorically, rock stars can do that in your company too, can't they? Come in from out of town, trash it all. They're not collaborative. I needed process-driven salespeople, which candidly worked real well because if they were former VPs of sales, they kind of got that. They kind of got them. They've been, they've been so busy beating it out of somebody else that they didn't have it for themselves either. And I said, I tell you what, by the way, a couple of beliefs. Belief number one, one of the beliefs, complex sales, business-to-business -business sales, a good salesperson can handle about 20 opportunities at any one time. No more. Your, your brow is furrowing. Bouncing between that number and 100, two different other gurus. Um, I, it's a shame. The guys, the guys. The, oh no, no, it's everything. The guy who's here, he's right. <laughs> Obviously, right. So, well, boy, I, I'd love to go through that with you because a hundred is um, it's a great curiosity. Love I'd love to, to see the great curiosity. I have great curiosity how you could manage a hundred good opportunities effectively. Here's how I tell people that they got to do their hundred. This is usually where I lose the guests. I do this at the end so that I can make a quick getaway, but. We've only got Hubertus here, and, 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 there's, and there's a table between us, and I'm pretty sure I can get out the employee interest. So I think <laughs> okay. So Santa folks, what was your last year's personal sales average? Average account size. If you've done $10 million in new business, you had 10 accounts, it was a million dollars. If you had $2 million, and it was $200,000 each, great. But what we say is, and by the way, little stuff and big stuff, only new business. And I try to have them measure it not so much against what we build, but as what we define the opportunity would be when they got to be big enough. Because a lot of businesses, not everyone, but a lot of businesses start off small and, you, and you're able to perform. There's $10 million of opportunity. We started with a test. We did a good job. They gave us more, et cetera. So there's a, there's a growth model to it. So we try to take those numbers, and then I say, I tell you what, for this year, if you have one to one and a half times last year's annual average, okay, I want you to have four accounts roughly that fit into that criteria. If you have one and a half to five times the revenue, 
I'd like that to be the lion's share of what you're doing. I want you to spend your time on bigger stuff. And stuff that for you, individual salesperson, is five times plus, I'd like to get about four of those accounts. So for you, Mr. Salesperson, really large tuna or whales should make up about 20% of what you're doing. And what you did on average last year should make up about 20% of what you're doing. But this year, I really want you to focus on the middle. Because I need you to be selling larger things. See, one of the other bad things about simple math and salespeople, very few salespeople equate more than one. And what I mean by that is, if I sell something, I made a sale. It's a big sale or a small sale. It's a sale. I get gratification out of having sold something. So unless you create a floor for them, they're going to sell everything. They're still going to be the one-eyed dog in the butcher shop. And what I say to them is anything lower than last year's average, without approval from me, um, just gets no commission. You can sell it. You can. And we'll service it. If you want to play the earn it game and hope that they're going to turn into the mighty oak sometime, fine. But we pay no commission on it. Now, like I said, this is usually when I lose the guests. Okay? Because you're kidding. Why would I do that? Because until you put a floor in place, you're never going to properly encourage people. You can even do higher commission rates as you go up. It won't matter. It doesn't matter. This has to be a rule of exception, which says that unless I personally, I, the CEO, say you can get commissioned on something that's smaller than average, you can't. Now, that's kind of step A. Step A is at the individual level. Step B, one of the great questions people, organizations ask themselves is, is my pipeline healthy? I mean, how many of you like your pipeline? How many of you have a pipeline? Yeah? Yeah? What don't you like about your pipeline? <clears throat> Shake out, fall out. Not fall we lose too much. Or, or too much gets stuck? Gets stuck. Gets stuck. Yeah. yeah. Deals get stuck. What do you not like about your pipeline? Yours is, a, yours is a unique business. You're retail. Right. right. This is going to be so much fun. You can just sit back and watch and hope that the jokes are good. <laughs> yeah, but they do have a wholesale not, component. Yeah, that's not well, then let's go back to the wholesale component. Do you have a pipeline? We have a pipeline, yes. Do you like it? We'd like to improve it. What would make it better? Adding more accounts. It's not big enough. Not big Stuck. Enough. It's not big enough, Dick. My accounts vary. There's just no... There's no consistency no and no predictability. No. Predictability. Yes. Ed? All the prospects are below the line. <laughs> <laughs> Quality. Quality of the pipeline um, is bad. Right? Yeah, it's uh, not enough left or right movement. Mm -hmm. We have very long sales cycles, so mm -hmm. it's a very important answer. Do you know what your average sales cycle is? You will make seventh person out of a hundred that would say could say yes to that to me. Seventh out of hundred visages. The ones that we close, though, there are not that many in this category. So, so our closure is really low, but we know which ones we get. Yes. Okay. Ian, uh, our accounts are struggling and having a hard time. Whether they're existing accounts or new accounts. So our pipeline. What does that do to our pipeline? 
What don't you like about your pipeline? It, it slows everything down. There's going to be a whole list of approvals. Uh, it's getting kicked up. We've been told the order's coming. And, you know, it's been three months since we were told it was coming. And yep. we still haven't All seen it. Content. And it's sitting on somebody's desk because anything over a quarter of a million now has to have the VP's signature and all that. So you got process problems, you got stuck problems, you got not now problems, right? Because you're new, right? Yeah. So now you know what your problems are. Okay. <laughs> I noticed you weren't writing. This is a to-do list, dude. <laughs> Lee. Access to the right people. Is that a pipeline problem, a process problem, or a contact problem? It is a process problem. Process problem. Do you have any problems with your pipeline? Well, it's a process of well, thinking of three different pipelines, so yes. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, look, I can go around. I can finish this for you. It's typically about transparency. I don't know if what's in there is real or if it's any good or if anybody's lying to me or if it's even got hope. Predictability. I don't have enough information to know whether or not the buy cycle is going to be anything close to what the buy cycle was for the last deal that was of similar size. So I don't know how to staff for it. Three, there's not enough. I don't know. In some cases, I don't know how much would be enough. What would be enough? Um, for the, the veracity of the information that we're receiving, I don't trust that my salespeople are inputting properly. Or five, I don't have a pipeline that measures the right things. Everybody we work with invariably has some of that frustration. So the reason we're starting at the end, and the reason we're going to talk about the move is one, we have too much in the pipeline. Mm. And we don't have an efficient way of getting to a no and getting it the hell out so we can focus on the right stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a, it's a great point. I mean, uh, how many people here play Texas Hold'em? Do you know what it is? Do you know how to play poker? Yes? No? Well, it's a five-card hand made out of seven cards. So let's imagine we're playing Texas Hold'em. I'm going to deal out two cards face down to everybody in the room. Ignore the blinds for, for the purpose of the exercise. And we're going to look at the two cards in our hand, and we're going to try to guess if we think we could make a decent winning hand. Now, what are the worst two cards to get face down? Do seven offsuit. Do seven offsuit. Worst two cards you can get. Because it has the lowest percentage chance of turning into a winning hand, right? Two years ago, uh, World Poker Tour number one wins in the final round with a seven deuce offsuit. Just to prove that God has a sense of humor, right? So, um, but having said that, so we get seven. So if you get, let's say, two aces or two kings or even two hearts, you're saying you want to have a flush. You might choose to stay in. So we bet, meaning we invest as to whether we're going to stay in or not. When that gets done, typically you're down to maybe three, maybe four people. So there's only three or four people left. We do what's called the flop, and three cards come face up. Now I have what information in front of me. I have how many chips I have, how many chips my competitors have, the three cards that, they, that we all have in common, my two cards, and what I know about them, about how they bet, about how they think, how they may have played in the past. I may not have played them, so that makes it harder, but I have more information. We bet again. Now we're down typically to maybe two, maybe three people. Then we have the turn, and then we have the river. And in each opportunity, we can either bet more or get out. We can bet more or we can get out. 
The best poker players in the world fold 96% of their hands before the final card because they figured out what most salespeople haven't, which is to stay the longest and to lose is just to be the biggest loser. Right? We need to recognize, to your point, what are two card questions we can ask that get us out of hands we have a low likelihood of winning. And then we need to get out. Then we need to do something that's really antithetical. We have to say no and walk away. Yeah, but how do you figure out suited, big, slick every time? Every one of them looks like a suited, big, slick, ace, king. <clears throat> On your side? Oh, that's... No, no, from, from our people. Mm -hmm. Every one of them. We're going to get them. We're going to get them. They're looking like they're suited, ace, king in, in the hole. Sure. We have to ask better questions of them. And we have to build a target filter that says, if you can't answer these questions, I can't assign resources. Let me tell you what we wind up doing with these A's, B's, and C's. Okay? Think of these as an A opportunity, and these as B opportunities, and these as C opportunities, and these as C opportunities. Right? What I always tell folks is, look, if it's a C opportunity, you should be able to go pretty much by yourself with very little support to get that deal closed. It's small, it's not complicated, you should be able to make it happen. It's a B opportunity, I'll tell you what. You can go yourself, and if your shaman thinks it's worthwhile, wants to participate, they can participate. And you can take the subject matter experts that are necessary to close the deal. We absolutely want B opportunities. If it's an A opportunity, we're going to move heaven and earth. We will do anything necessary. Ownership will move. Executive staff will move. We will do whatever it takes because that's the kind of business we really want. Now, when I did that at West in the second year, we had a close rate here of 32% and a close rate here of 97%. And the difference was I didn't change their commissions. So where do you think in year three they wanted to spend their time? Here. Because when we could move heaven and earth, when we could go after it, when we took our very best people, our very best thinking, our very best energy, literally we lost one deal in an entire year because we were chasing stuff we were was perfectly suited for us. And we, we're diligent, and I'm going to encourage you to be diligent. I'll show you how about asking yourself, is this the kind of opportunity we should be moving heaven and earth for? Who hunts at this level? This is the executive team. That's who heaven and earth is. I'm not saying your shaman's not involved. I'm not saying your harpooner's not involved. But your very best people are engaged actively in this. Now, how many whales does a company need? Depends on the size of the company. If you use the metaphor, how many whales do you need in a one, year? One per year. One per year. Okay. Now, I haven't defined what a whale is, so let me give you a definition. A whale is a piece of business that is 10 to 20 times the size of your average. 10 to 20 times the size of your average. It's a piece of business that's at least 3% of your total revenue as a second possibility. Or it's something that will materially move your business. Materially move your business. 
Can you have whales that are too big? Absolutely. I sat with the Vistage Group yesterday. Gentleman is an $8 million firm. He has a $100 million contract staring him in the face over five years, so $20 million a year. Government, and he is just wrestling with, should I take this or not? Because it's, he likes to think of himself as a riverboat gambler, but the price is pretty high in his head. It's like, you know, if it works, it works, and if it doesn't, I kill the company. He's all in. He's all in. He's absolutely all in. And that's the problem. If your whale's too big, you know, it's funny. If you borrow $10 million, the bank owns you. If you borrow $100 million, you own the bank. Same thing. So now you sit here and you go, whoa, what am I going to do? What am I, you know, what's too big? What's the size company that the template in terms of how many people are in the boat? Your company that you're. So when I'm working with a, a $120 million KVM, Okay. How many people are in the boat? Depends on how many people we're going to be pitching. We take no, no um, less than two for every three that they have. So if they're going to have 12 people involved, I'm going to have at least eight people in the room. I have no reference for that, right? Because if you only have two people, then you have no eight people to take. Well, it, de it depends. We're, we're actually going to fill out a, a boat here in a little bit. Because my question would be to you, in your wellness yeah. side of it, um, and it's possible you don't need to to take a crew, but it's possible you would be more effective if you did. Right. Because what if you brought in people who had some of the clinical side, other people? One of the things that's difficult is to be the subject matter expert and the harpooner at the same time. It's very difficult. Because they look at you and they say, I don't care if you're the owner, you're still selling me. Give me the person who's going to actually do the work. I want to talk to them. That's the person I want to engage with. Does that make sense? So, now, what I want you to do is I want you to look at page 21. The secret to my success is the implementation of the diamond and the movement pipeline. The movement pipeline goes like this. You'll notice there's 20 accounts down the left side. The opportunity value is the number just to the right of those. Opportunity value means that, it, look, if in the first year I think the thing's going to do about a half a million bucks, but by year two or three it'll be doing a million because of the growth, then we assign it a million. I've had people who put this year's billings in ongoing billings. You know, that's another way of looking at it. What's first year billings? What's third year billings? But it's a way so that you can properly look at the deal and say, what would it be if I... What re if, you, if you dedicated the wrong resources now because the deal is really $3 million down the road, but you dedicated mentally a half million dollars worth of resources in terms of what you're willing to give to sell, you might leave the harpooner by themselves and not bring the heaven and earth opportunity, even though through growth, that's what you're going to see. Does that make sense? So you've got to be able to look at what the opportunity value is going to be. Third thing I have, I always put the source of the lead. You'd be shocked how many people have no idea where their business is coming from. You don't have, you know, did it come off the web? Did it get, was it a referral? Was it a cold call? Was it a trade show? Where did we get the business? Where should we be investing our marketing dollars? Then across the top are nine steps. Um, I have companies who are in the manufacturing business. Their sales process is 23 steps. I have nobody who has less than nine. So um, this is not for you to adopt. This is for you to go build one on your own that would make sense. But we put in place... This is for a national client I did way back in 2008. 
pulling that way back, but back in 2008. Dossier. The dossier is the research on the firm. When was it done? When did we decide we were going to chase them? First touch, when did we first actually speak to them? DM touch is decision maker touch. When did we actually get to a decision maker? <coughs> Qualify, when did they answer the question sufficient for us to determine that they were somebody we wanted to chase? In this case, they did a boat launch, which I don't always do, but the boat launch is when did we assign resources? When did we assign the harpooner, the SMEs that they're supposed to get, or assign them the executive team? When did we do that? Table meet is when we met with their table, their buyer's table, all the influencers and people with purchase decision power. Proposal, close, and contract are fairly straightforward. Now, what's different about this than, than other systems? Pretty much it's about the buy cycle. You'll notice that the black on the green is the date that the activity actually happened, and the black on the tan is the next scheduled date for something to happen. We don't go any further than that. And I asked my salespeople to do 10 movements per week. Each time, each sell shift is one movement. And I just say to my salespeople, I want you to do 10 movements per week across the total of 20 accounts. Now, I don't care if you make four movements in one week on one account, but you've got to do 10 total movements in a week. Now, there's five rules at the bottom. Rule number one is killing dead weight. I give people credit for killing dead weight, which means that they get to count a movement when they kill dead weight, right, which is good. Second, they don't get, by the way, they don't get credit for putting one on. You know, then you get five off, five on, five off, five on. It's you know, very counterproductive. So the only killing, dead, killing dead weight is cleaning off the pipeline. Anytime they take something off because they said, we said no or because the, the prospect said no, okay. they take it off the pipeline or they say, you know what, taking too long, not worth chasing. Gotcha. Here's the other thing, and this is important. Um, I don't know if your salespeople have what they would consider to be protected accounts or protected prospects. We have a fundamental rule around that. You can have 20 on the pipeline and no more than 20 protected, which means 20 that you're planning on coming to the pipeline. Everything else is in the soup, and anybody can chase it. I find salespeople have stuff that's five years old that's on their pipeline that's still sitting there that's protected. Nobody can go talk to it, and they keep saying, you know, well, John and I are really good friends, and when this really turns around, we're going to go, we're going to go get it. No. Time to reassign that opportunity and clean it out. So you can do 20 and 20 is kind of our rule for this from a very practical standpoint. Two, defining movement. For every one of those little blue things above, there has to be a very clear in writing definition because salespeople are psychic. We can kind of feel like we've talked to a decision maker without actually having gone through the process of demonstrating we talked to a decision maker. Third, movements per week. It's 10. It's not seven, it's not six, it's not adjustable, it's not, not, it's different in our business. Trust me, it's like pi or Avogadro's number, okay? It's the right number for managing people. We understand in Western culture, 10 means complete. So what do you do? Simple. If your laziest salesperson's knocking out 15 movements per week, you got too many steps in the process. Cut out the steps. Cut it down the number of steps that you're going to measure. If your hardest working salespeople can only get to eight, 
then increase by putting in sub-steps. It's a great process. It just takes a couple, three months, and by the time you get three months through, you'll have a process that's tight, that makes sense, and the 10 movements will happen for. Steps to measure. What I do is out to the right of this, if you can imagine on a spreadsheet, I calculate the difference between, say, boat launch and when we qualified, and from qualified to decision maker touch. I'm measuring the bicycle on the interstitials, right? No? I'm not? You might be, but I didn't understand. Okay, so if you imagine up to the right. Here. Yeah, yeah. up here. I'm calculating this minus this. So actually, that doesn't work very well. Let me do this one minus this one. So from the 18th of 08 back to the 12th of 07 is 32 days. So I know that the difference between those that period of time is 32 days. I take all those and I drop them to the bottom and I find that an average is an average because it's an average and now I'll know what my bicycle is. I'll tell you exactly on average how long prospects stay in pipeline between points in time. Which means if we're substantially higher in any one section, I have my spreadsheet flag it for me because it'll tell me if it's 30% more time than we normally have, I'll know we're losing a deal. It lets my sales management go, hold on a second. One of the keys is we're not getting things done in a relatively timely manner. What do I need to know about that? It's just an early warning system to try to help you keep track of what the buy cycle is. And you know what? This is beautiful stuff. You can sort this to what's the buy cycle by lead, by size of account, by salesperson. You can sort this. A friend of mine uh, sorts it, um, what he calls the, uh, the applause meter triangle. And so it's that. He goes, well, it's like this. He says, I sort it by what deals are the closest to being done all the way down to what deals are the least li or, or the furthest from being done. And then I start to go in and make cuts as to what I can project, my close, et cetera. Over time, you can pretty much get to what your close rate's going to be at each stage, right? So by the time I get to qualify, we have a 40% chance because we've done a good job of qualifying. By the time I get to the proposal, we have a 70% chance of closing. Does that make sense? And the last thing is diligence. You have to be really diligent about doing this. Now, I do guest shamaning right now. Oh, I was just mentioning KBM. Uh, big $120 million data analytics company is part of the Wonderman family out of Dallas. And they are in the process of hiring a new EVP of sales. So they fired their EVP of sales and they asked me to come in. We, we put in process for them and they, they hired the wrong guy. So they asked us to come back and guest shaman, meaning help them hire a new EVP and help them repopulate their sales staff. So I've been doing that for the last four months. I can manage their 10 salespeople in about an hour per person per week. Now, how do I do that? I take about a half an hour to review their weekly report they give me. Now, their weekly report they give me is one page, and it's what were the movements you had scheduled for last week and what were the results of those. So you've scheduled this. What did you get done? What are the movements you have scheduled for this week? And what problems do you have that I can help with? And I have a no more than 30-minute phone call with them each week cover those issues, which leaves me the rest of the time, if I'm the EVP, to do what? Help chase these. Help chase these. See, EVPs of sales or heads of sales also can waste a tremendous amount of time because they don't know how to reduce the amount of contact they have with their salespeople to something that's meaningful. 
I had an organization that helped about three years ago. I had everybody wear a bat button that says, I can't buy anything. Why are you talking to me? Right? Because <laughs> <laughs> the salespeople all wanted to be in the office. I can't buy anything. Why are you talking to me? Right? So we want them out in the field. We want our EVP out in the field, coaching and, and working, and working big accounts and hiring new salespeople and all those kinds of things, right? Training. To do this, the best EVPs of sales are, are bored to tears with managing. And they're just happy about having 10 hours per week. It's their least favorite 10 hours. It's their most productive 10 hours. They'll tell you that. Because all they're doing is knocking off what does it take to keep you moving. And I'm, The other thing this, this system causes you to do, it forces you to commit an unnatural act as a salesperson. You have to plan. Because it is impossible to get 10 movements done if you haven't planned for 16 to 17. See, life's imperfect. So you say, I'm going to get these 10. Every salesperson I've ever talked to, I'll tell them that. The first time we sit down and meet, how many, how many, um, how many movements do they have planned? 10. 10. Because right. that's the only thing, that's the only 10 we can have. We only got five. We're like, and, and then they get done. They go, and you know what? Because you know, he went on vacation. I didn't know that. You know? Life's imperfect. So you got to get them to plan 16 to 17, which means the 10 were easy and obvious. The extra six or seven takes some creative thought. They're going to have to actually look at this system and say to themselves, i got to get to 10. Now, it is impossible to execute this system and not have 40% new sales, more sales than you did last year in new business. Can't be done. We haven't found a client that could do it yet. So each step is generically... A week in time. There could be gaps, but on average, if you're going to do plan 17, you only have 20 to work with, and you want 10 a week. You lost me now. Man, so let's not read. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you have 20, 20 prospects to work with. I always ask the same question. Is a tip or a tap? Right? Yeah, absolutely. What's a tap? How do I get one? And how right. do I trade it for the other? It's <laughs> better than a ham sandwich, right. isn't it? Yeah, it is. So go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. So your steps down the line are generically a week in length. If you essentially everyone's getting planned to move once a week. So if you need to move ten, you're moving half, so it'd be a two week even cycle. So like the process then should end in a shorter frame or in some yeah, I mean, you typically wind up shortening your buy cycle, and I'll, I'll tell you why that is here in a second. But um, it's not always a week, you know. It, it's it's certainly not. And what you'll yeah, but what you'll find is for the most part, folks are going to knock out three to four movements on a couple of accounts over the course of two weeks, and they're going to knock out singles. Look, the beginning of the pipeline is relatively quick, so you get a bunch of movements. And then you kind of stall out, which is why, to your point, you got to kill stuff that's not working. Because the only way for you to get your 10 movements is to remove garbage. And you got to remember the way that you just defined it, all those accounts would have had to stay. They're not all going to stay. You're going to get rid of a whole bunch of them in this qualify stage. Right after the decision maker touch. But you're replacing them at the same time, right? You are. You are. But my point is, is that's why the, the weak part doesn't Maybe make sense. Maybe that's where the 100 come from, then. So, the, so you have to have the pool to replace them from. Certainly. So that's why I always say that you have to have, you can protect 20, you can work 20, 
And when you when you move one, you can put somebody else in. Well, maybe one disconnect is that there's you know there's leads, there's qualified leads, and there's opportunities, which is really the beginning of this process is the opportunity. Which is, nope. You know, nope. No. That, that that's no. I, I'm putting I'm putting. Every company makes a decision when you can write down the first first deal. See, it's not just the 20 that are there. Any decent salesperson is going to be still working some of the 20 that are under. He's got the 100. Yeah, I, okay. But he's, any decent salesperson is going to be working the 20. So you've got the 20 that you're working on, and you're trying to get a dossier and a first touch on some of the others so that the minute something falls out, you have something that you can put two steps in for. I'm not making sense. I can tell Dick's... Yeah, so a, well, new, so a new entry on the... on the, It's like there's only one guy here that's not already a first touch. Yep. Right, so you're saying you get the first two usually... Pretty like bang the bang. The first touch is when you're actually putting them on here. Most of the time. Vast majority of the time. On the dossier, like that particular one, the one that says ABC on it, I can tell you that that was an owner call. I can tell you that the gentleman, the reason that that's on there's dossier is because this is an account he's wanted them to chase forever and they didn't. Basically went to the salesperson and said, it's now on your list so I can watch it and yell at you. And you'll notice that the difference in time was it had been on the account for, since 5.15 and it's now 2.7. So that's the, problem when you, that's the problem when you actually use live data. Maybe I'm not patient. I've got a question. Are you managing most of this in Salesforce? Yes. Um, uh, I think it can do almost everything here. I'm not particularly 100% sure that it can manage the movement. But I can see it. I mean, when they're going in there and they're adjusting, I can see daily movement. Yeah. Um, two things. One, we're in the process of building an app for Salesforce.com that you could buy, that you would allow you to just export this report in this format. Not just this, we've got a whole bunch of stuff. But anyway, that, that's one thing that's, that's really... And the diamond as well. That will actually generate the reporting for you, all of that. But two, there are clients... I've had clients who have exported this to Excel from Salesforce.com. I don't know how to do it. But if you've got somebody who's a junkie and you hand them this, they can do it for you. See, the well, biggest I issue... I think I'm getting most of this now. Uh, but... but I, of course, no great surprise, as the author, am enamored with this format. Who, who would have guessed, right? right? Consequently, I happen to like the applause-o-meter approach. Okay. It says, how far is this coming and how does it compare to everything else? But I have that on Salesforce. It gives me the applause-o-meter. I know. I've, I've actually... written by him. Have I mentioned it's not like this? Don't you have many more leads that turn into opportunities the way you're managing through Salesforce? And what you're talking about with this pipeline management. Because you have many more accounts, I would think, based on what you're saying. So this really highlights you know, the ones that you're going to allow to focus on the A's, B's, C's, you know, this kind of thing. Yeah, but you can edit and, well, that's neither here nor there. I mean, I, I think I'm not that good at it, but I know what I can get. I know the data I can get out of it. And then I just call um, uh, my business development guy and just say, hey, listen, <clears throat> I want to see this report. Mm-hmm. The, the topic, the reason we look at it this way, and I, and I currently, for example, the, the folks I'm guest shamaning now, I got dashboards out the wazoo at salesforce.com. 
I still have to have a dialogue with them. How many movements did you schedule? And how many movements did you get done? And if I'm curious about the account, what Salesforce lets me do is go learn everything I want to know. You know what I said? I'd have to spend a half an hour preparing. Typically, it's around the things I'm still that I'm worried about in their in their pipeline, and I'll go to Salesforce.com to do my deep dive. Okay. So, you know, it's and, and this is you know pretty effective for for people who have been frustrated with lots and lots of dashboards, but not lots and lots of effective information. Okay. This is a very simple dashboard to say because it's an accountability tool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really focuses your really life. And when you start to when you start to measure buying cycle, um, I had somebody from Vistage who's a statistics person tell me that 38 instances is when it's statistically valid. So, uh, Ray, how many salespeople do you have? Three and a half. Three. 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 Because he had to go to jail because he'd been bad. Um, so we walk in and there was uh, Maxine the Machine, who is this 75-year-old woman, about 100 pounds soaking wet. She was the receptionist and she's standing up doing a survey. And she says, how many people work here? About half. <laughs> All right. I knew a lot of people were not going to make it that day. I knew Maxine was going to make it. Maxine, was gonna, Maxine you, you just sit right down there, honey. I'll be, I'll be back in a minute. I got to go shoot your boss. Okay, thank you. So, um, so you got three salespeople. So you're going to see 60 accounts or 70, three and a half salespeople. Okay. Ian, how many do you have? Two. You're going to see four. Well, you bet three. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, everybody in your firm sells and nobody does, right? I got somewhere between zero and 80. Right. <laughs> All professional services firms. Yeah. See, Paul? One and a half. One and a half? Dan, you got five. Yeah, I thought so. So, did you just. Just one. Hit it. You? One. Two. I'm always curious why this confuse this question is confusing. <laughs> Two halves. Two halves. <laughs> so are you making any distinction between lead and opportunity? Yeah. Yeah. And these are just the opportunities. The vast majority of the time we have to have had some sort of a touch with them before they jump onto this sheet. So the first two, you've kind of knocked out before they make the sheet. Sometimes the third one, too. Sometimes your first touch is with the decision maker. Look, you know a guy who knows a guy, and he gets you in. Right. Your first call, right. uh, I did my dossier, my first touch, my Here's the, uh, the decision maker. Exactly. You get three of those in a week, you're, what, and then you, you knock them off. You're, you can play thoughts, golf. What are your thoughts on that relative to the way we use this is, once they're qualified, they move from a lead to an opportunity. Tell you you're qualified, exactly. and they're not really an opportunity. The way you use it, sales service or with this. Yeah. Yeah. You don't, until you go through the business acceptance process, which means that for an opportunity that a salesperson thinks is going to need more resource than just themselves, that's when we really say to them, okay, we need to know what the qualifications are before we assign resource to it. In your case, that would be the difference between an opportunity and a lead and an opportunity. And that's how Salesforce defines it, right? You know, if someone hits your website, so it's a lead. And yeah. then you move it to an opportunity once you've made that. Well, and, and remember, it has to meet those four things. They've got money, right? They have a timeline. They want what you sell, and you want to sell it to them. Right? 
Because that's not always the case. And until you at least have that fundamental process for that, which is sort of four criteria again. Number one, they have money. They have a budget. Something's actually going to happen. And they can pay. Yeah, exactly. The quality of their money. And that's a D&B kind of a thing, typically. Have they been around a long time? Have we read anything about them in the paper? All that stuff. It should be in your dossier. So do they have money? Do they have a need for something that we want? And three, do we want to sell it to them? There are companies you won't work with again. You forgot timelines. No, I haven't got the fourth. Yeah, that's because I can't keep anything in my head. And the fourth one is, do they have a sense of timing that's acceptable to you for when they're going to do this? I hate whistling gophers. I hate whistling gophers. You know what a whistling gopher is? They look at what you got and they go, what's that gopher? Right? Come on, that was just funny. Come on. It's cheesy. But it was a little inside, still. In your heart. That one was delayed, but it had to sink in. Can you also revisit the weekly sales report? Sure. In the weekly sales report, I have three sections. In the weekly sales report, section one is, what movements did you have scheduled from last week and you got done or didn't get done? So basically, it's kind of text, right? You take the list and you put it up, and that becomes the first thing we talk about. Second is, what are you planning for movements for the next week? And third, what problems or issues can I solve for you? Historically, for me, it's about 10, 10, 10. It's about 10 minutes per, per section. Now, I've got unlimited time to talk about that. You've got a big meeting coming up and you want to do a strategy. That's not our weekly meeting. This is just our weekly meeting. This is just me at the back of the boat as a shaman, the coxswain, hitting the drum saying, are you staying on her? Because the worst thing that I see is the minute they see one of these things, everything else ceases, which is also why your bicycle goes to crap. Because they stop paying any attention to them until they come back later. So if you say, you know, hold a second. I know we're chasing this. I'm not an idiot. We've been paying attention. I still have ten other ten movements you have to do every week. Oh, but boss, you don't understand. Yeah, I do. I understand I'm paying you somewhere north of a buttload of money um, to go and get ten movements every week. That's my expectation. And by the way, since we got heaven and earth working, all you're doing most of the time is coordinating and watching I, I removed the burden of doing all the setup. We're going to take care of that. So, any questions about this? Therefore, you've driven this on a weekly process. Do you have any comments relative to cycles that are more into a year to year and a half about the timing and how to use this tool. Yeah, that client actually has an average bicycle of 4.1 months, um, down from 6.3. So when we started, they were at 6.3. And what happened is that, um, and then I'll, I'll come back to answer the other part of the question. What happened is they figured out that the minute they started to post them, 
salespeople started to get competitive. Issue number one. Issue number two. They found out that the largest deals took less time than their smaller deals. So when they put this in place, they cut all the crap out. Small deals done by small people take a long time because it's big to them. Big deals done by big people don't take as long because they're, they're more proficient at doing them. So that helped them. Third, by having 10 movements per week, they found, and uh, this was great for me. This was a great learning experience because I actually worked with them for several years on this. Um, they found that their salespeople started to steal movements from the next week. So they were going to make a call next Wednesday, and they got to Thursday, and they only had seven movements. They'd make next Wednesday's call today, and they would get the same answer they were going to get next Wednesday. But because they had to have ten movements, they were force-forwarding stuff and being more responsive or more, more proactive with their accounts. And they weren't, they, the schedule, the system was pushing them to do more, to do more. Um, so that cut their buy cycle um, by a lot. Oh, and then, oh, there's one other thing. I'm sorry, this is really important. When they started to look at the interstitials, they found, in their case, there's a gal named Rochelle Latier, who from qualify, from launch to close, was 40% of the, of the amount of time it took everybody else. She was 60% less time. Yeah. So, we did what she should do. How are you doing that, right? We went and asked her, how are you... What we figured out is she had a really cool, she was really smart. When she'd go to the launch meeting, she'd start by bringing a standard contract, a set of terms, and a format for what they were going to do. She'd just bring those, and those would be start part of every dialogue. So she started way early, because it always had to go through legal. They always had to have a tour. They had all this stuff. And she just got all that stuff running in a parallel process to the pitch process. She also was their most productive salesperson, not just by close rate, but she, she had a high close rate as well as a faster close rate. So we wound up migrating that and making it standard procedure for everybody else, which shrunk the, shrunk the time. So we started to see what are good practices, and then we could use them for everybody. Now, um, when you have a sales cycle that you, that you know is going to be a year to two years, right? couple things that I think would be helpful. One is you're going to need more steps, without a doubt. And two, you're probably going to have to back up between things like dossier and first touch, between first touch and decision maker touch. You may have to have many meetings along the way. You may also have to look at what the, um, if, if, and I don't know your business at all, if there are other constituents outside of just the buyer's table that have to be talked to. That's very much our situation. Right. So in that case, what you wind up doing is you, you could do a master movement pipeline for the sales process, but because you want to manage to the sub-components, you run separate movement pipelines for other constituent bases. And that way you start to shrink. You start to get, all right, that constituent base only takes, let's say, five months to get on board. I've got a little process for them, and I can see. One of the things that you want your sales process to do is to motivate your salespeople because as salespeople, we wake up every day and if we sell something, we're good, and if we don't sell something, we're, we're bad. It's, it's the frustrating part of what we do. And so, you know, you watch salespeople, they're in many ways, not clinically, but they're bipolar. I mean, they're either very happy or they're very unhappy, right? So what this is about is, you know what, how I'm going to measure you? Are you completing the process? 
10 movements means you've done... I know you will meet your goals if you do 10 movements a week. So now what we have to do then is, is to bust up where we're going to do the movements. So if you could sub out the two or three other constituent bases. I don't know how many there are, but two or three. Now I have, and I know it's a little more complicated, but I probably have four pipelines for the same person. And inside of all four, they need 10 movements. That's another way of looking at it. Does that help? It helps some to think about. I, I'm concerned about the, uh, you know, the, the process of being in the home office doing all this to manage this as opposed to getting out and really moving through the process. Because part of our challenge is we don't understand some of these influences that come out later in the process. You haven't identified all these people up front, and a lot of it is uh, personalities or interests of the moment or whatever. Sure, sure. Um, we have a path to build that, but yes, I, mean, I know what you're talking about. Um, we, we do a, you know, how, how do you map a process stuff. Um, see, this usually is about a 12-minute exercise, and so this is the first time I've ever moved it to the front. It took a little more than 12 minutes. But does this make sense? Can I ask the back? That's right. I had two questions, Tim. You just answered the one about how this can sort of like naturally shorten your sales cycle. You also said something a few minutes ago, probably at the 12 minute one, about you haven't come across a company yet in your work that didn't increase their sales by at least 40%. Yeah, I mean, the process is, is, is almost like physics. If you're doing 10 movements against accounts that are qualified and that the institution has made decisions on, what you're going to wind up doing is killing a lot of junk that you shouldn't be pitching. You're going to be doing a lot of two-card questions, which means your close rate goes up. Right. right? And when I can close the buying cycle substantially, what does that let me do? Well, it gives me better cash flow. That's one of those things everybody tells me. But it lets me do more with the same number of people or the same amount with less people. Well, by the way, I might also add one of the things that we don't like to talk about very much is you're going to lose about a third of your sales staff. About a third of your sales staff is because you're going to discover they're not a good fit for your firm because they've been, they haven't been using this kind of a process. At the end of the day, it really uncovers a lot of things that you didn't want to see around activity. Because these are real hard dates, right? The minute you start to define them, you know, uh, I, I think I built this around my father telling me when I started to run a sales organization, Tim, all you're going to do is hear stories all day long. And I realized I didn't want to hear stories. <coughs> it really just didn't. I have an unlimited appetite for great stories where we win in the end. I really do. We can, we can sit for dinner for days for that. But everything else, I, I called him nine times. I don't care. I, I, I don't care. You know, did you get the answer? Well, no, then why are we talking about it? Because I don't care about your effort. I only care about is the outcome. Yeah? yeah. One comment on bringing the, uh, uh, the contract. Uh, we have a boilerplate a client rate. And when we started, we did that. We started bringing it to the initial uh, table meeting. Uh -huh. uh, cut a minimum of three weeks off the sales cycle. Minimum. Because it gets into legal, and when it gets into legal, they are always the time, I don't mean any disrespect, but they always have to do something to it. They always have to do something to it. They're adding value. Yeah. yeah. That's, 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 my, that's my pipeline you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 
so it, it, gets, it gets it in their hand, gets it in their hands. <laughs> they're, going through, they're going through, and, and, it, and when legal, when their legal um, counsel is investing time in it, it's helping us push that cycle along because the clock's ticking. Yeah, I just wound up having this uh, conversation. I have a company I'm going to go see over um, in Philadelphia tonight. It's a client of mine. It's a big claims adjusting organization in physical medicine, and fascinating. They've never done proposals. All they've done is bring contracts, et cetera, to folks, but they always bring them right at the end, et cetera. They never codify, they never sew the mouth shut. So when the contract gets there, it doesn't include all the nuances of the scope of work. And I said, well, do you have a scope of work? No, we have a contract. I said, no. You, contract's for him. Scope of work's for you. I said, lawyers need to look at the contract, because that's all the terms and you know all that stuff. But you need to have a scope of work that defines what I'm going to do and what you're going to do. And by and large, the lawyers don't have to spend much time with that. So what I say to folks is, is, is tell you what, we're going to give your con our contract to your lawyer, and we'll work together on a scope of work. And the scope of work will be both of ours. So we're gonna, we're, this will be a collaborative, and this will be extended off to end. And that, that's worked very effectively for them, is to, is to be able to say, now we're working on the scope of work. Because then nobody's looking at the contract. The contract isn't the issue anymore. That's a legal problem. So you're doing both at the same time. Mm -hmm. Parallel track. Right? Yeah. Parallel track. Yeah, the worst time, talking about these things blowing up at the end, is after all the work is done, and then, then somebody pulls the contract out, and then you get to a point, and it does happen, where there's a term that the selling company's not willing to live without, and the buyer won't accept. If you can find a way to get that out on the table early, you're going to save a lot of grief. Otherwise, it's well, and, and the other point is, you know, I, I, maybe offline we can talk about the, the scope of work. Mm -hmm. Because the scope of work is, um, uh, it's, it's like bullet pointed as we're going through in, in talking. The client agreement, um, if you don't have the two together, the, their corporate attorneys whacking stuff out. And it's like, well, no, no, wait a minute. It is, and it wasn't handed off. Maybe it was our accountability to give the scope of work along with the client agreement to the attorney. It would have saved everybody time. Do you ask the corporate attorney to come to the first meeting? No. Why not? He's We're messing dancing. with you. We're dancing. In the He's messing with your head. If he's going to mess with your head later, get him now. Say, can we bring the corporate attorney? I want him to understand what the process is going to be. I'll give him a copy of the contract, and I'll let him know how we're going to work out the scope of work, and we'll keep him informed. Corporate attorney's going to go, good. Nobody ever brings me into business meetings. They want to. Is that true? Sure. If, I get, if I'm in early, I tell people right away, we're going to waste a lot of time. The systems we have that work best are clients who, because you're right, scope of work, as long as we make sure somebody doesn't write it sloppy, so it, so it doesn't say anything. No, did you cross over to the scope? Did you cross over to the scope in your conversation there? Well, no. I mean, the scope will work as long as it's clear. We're not going to mess with it. But the what we try and do is make sure people know the the, the, the stuff that we don't care about, like the scope will work, the stuff that they have room to negotiate on and the stuff that's going to be a deal breaker. And, and if they happen to know that, that the deal breaker range is where some of the big stuff is for a particular deal, then we really encourage them, then bring me in early. Let's, let's talk about it. Um, 
and, and, and proactive, some corporations that get the buyers, the targets the whales, <laughs> their lawyers are allowed to get involved early. We can, and we, we're not holding the deal up. We're, we're running on a separate track. But uh, people who, who think, well, we only got to get the lawyers in at the end, end up wasting a lot it of It makes dollars. a lot of sense to get them in early, but the customer really has to understand why their attorney's there. Well, and, and let's yeah. talk about that for a second. Oh, because yeah. If, they're, if, they're not, if they don't have the same view, yeah, or if they want to get that attorney involved in every single step, the scope, everything else you're doing, that has hurt us in the past. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that for a second because we're going to do, well, actually, we'll, we'll, we're going to segue. We're going to segue to page eight. It didn't work out too good for the guy who bought the company, right? See how you're going to be. What? Jumping ahead. Nice. Surprise to us. <laughs> nice. The um, the buyer's table. The buyer's table. It's interesting if you think about the way that this typically runs. You have a salesperson who gets involved, and they they get through the first gatekeeper, right? And they get to maybe a decision maker, and some real dialogue starts to happen, right? Then they bring in their team the full buyer's table. We move along and in the end it comes down to, and then the, the company does the same thing. Our prospect does the same thing. You ever notice that over time, it's like Velcro, more people keep showing up to the meetings? Because the more you're in with the client, the more people are going to be impacted by the work you're doing and whale size deals are like that. So even if you only have three or four meetings, or in your case maybe more, I don't know, depending on it, you're going to wind up typically with some more people. And then right at the end, it comes back down to usually the harpooner or the chief or the shaman on our side. And maybe the lawyer purchasing and the buyer on their side. And that's kind of it. And then it comes back out to get the work done. Correct? Does this make sense? The problem is we let this system dictate our sales process. Our clients drive our sales process. Mostly because we don't know how to ask them to buy from us using our own sales process. Because in part, we haven't sold them on the idea that we're really good at this. And we know how to really make it work for them. We've made it sound like it's about us when it really needs to be about them. So I want you to look on the left side. Anybody besides me ever remember the day when it used to be just two fellows talking and you could close a big deal? I mean, a big deal. And then after that, it was, you know, working out some terms. Not just handshake, I mean, real contracts, but you can't do that anymore. You notice that? You still do that? No, not me. Oh. You know a guy one time? It's like every man's story starts with me and a buddy of mine one time. We were so drunk. Or, you know, all right, sorry. So, right? All men's stories start in the same kind of general vein. Um... What's true? What, what happened? Why can't we do just two fellows talking anymore? Too complex. You know, I, I maintain it's, um, it's Harvey's Oxley and matrix management. Matrix management is great. It's, it, matrix management is, I think, Latin for everybody's responsible but nobody's accountable, right? <laughs> because we're all pulling resources and pools, etc., but nobody actually reports to me. So whoever our economic buyer is, if they screw up, 
Everybody else's department gets to point the finger at the buyer. So the buyer's terrified to make a decision because they're in a very difficult position. They are stuck. So, I want you to think about your business. What kinds of people have to show up on the buyer's side by the time the process is done for you to have a successful sale? You've got the champion. We sometimes refer to them as the polar bear or the economic buyer, your choice. Who else comes from their company? Give me some departments. Engineering. Engineering. Who else? Purchasing. Ah, uh, purchasing. And their ugly uncle, finance. <laughs> okay. Who else? IT. IT. God, I love IT showing up. I had a guy selling aggregate and Vistage. You know what aggregate is? I didn't know. It's rock. It's not even particularly interesting rock. It's just rock. Small pieces of rock. Small pieces of rock, but he sells it by the truckload and by the, the container load, right? And he said, Tim, I don't know why, but when I get to a million-dollar deal, he says, we don't even send email. But we get to a million-dollar deal, and IT is always there. We sell rock. <laughs> he said, I don't know why, but they just come. They just they just out of the woodwork. IT shows up. Who else? I got HR. HR. R&D. 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 Marketing. Marketing. Whoever ops is, right, Whoever, you know, depending on your business, whoever's actually going to have to do something with all that. Black ops. QC. Uh, quality control. Hey, and the people who really add value. Consultants. Those are nice. <laughs> Lawyers. Legal. <clears throat> Lawyers, guns, and money. Yep. So, on our side, who don't they want to talk to? Lawyers. The sales guy. These people don't want to talk to the sales guy. Who do they want to talk to? Everyone else. They want to talk to people who talk like them. Yeah. Right? They want to talk to the people who are doing the work. Now, hear me now and understand me later. This is very important. We spend all of our sales time worrying about the person who can say yes. Right? The economic buyer. We've been trained from knee-high grasshopper to be focused on the economic buyer. If this is the only person who can say yes, what can everybody else say? No. No, we're not now. Your organization, these people need to be trained to sell to the no's. Stop selling to the yeses. See, the no's are the ones who are going to kill you. It's not the yeses. I want you to look at page 8, and I'd like you to put for your business who needs to be showing up in the sales process. What departments, what organizations ultimately are going to have some impact on your ability to sell? And that can include people that you've never met. And what I mean by that is purchasing in a company. You never actually physically get to see. You know, I've had people say it's going to have to go to purchasing and no one's ever actually met purchasing. You know, as far as I know, that's Millie in the basement, you know, who just, you know, whacks off 15% on everything because it just makes her feel better. And I, you know, there are times that you never even meet purchasing. So let's talk about the people who you can meet and the people that you should meet. Okay? Go. What we call ravens. Ravens are the people who want you to win. 
They may be in any one of these departments, but they're the people who think, gosh, it would be great if we got you guys in here. Eels, eels are the opposite. Eels are the guys who don't want you to win. They're part of that impediment to uh, change. Because they what? Why wouldn't they want you in there? Change? More, better, different. They got a vendor they really like. They got a buddy who's getting them tickets to whatever they want to go to. New system, new vendor usually means more work. Oh yeah, change almost always feels like work. You know, and who isn't going to have to do any of that work? Your economic buyer. So everybody else goes, yeah, look at this. He's going to tell us to go buy a new system, and he doesn't have to do anything. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yes. That's. To me, that's fascinating because what it does is it, uh, of course, all the cultural stereotypes come right out. Right. Really? You got the Dutch negotiating? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> nice. The Austrians already know the Dutch people. They already talk. It's that they don't know the UK people or the Indians. <laughs> so we've got so this has been a good I, day for, I, for you. I can identify the ravens and the eels, but yeah. that's, that's, really, that's really good. Yeah. You have ravens and eels, and, and it's... So let me ask you another question. Who on your side needs to be there? Who on your side needs to be there? What we're looking for, so the right side, what we're looking for is where do you have gaps? Yeah. Is it for the initial buyer's table? Or no, at any time in the buying process. For us, the buyer's table starts from, from the minute we have talked to the decision maker. It's just that, like I showed before, over time... The rest of them show up. Yeah, See, part of changing all the guns out to that original. No, no. Okay. no. What I'm saying is, is that you're going to take some, but over time, who all will have shown up from your side, okay. and who all will have shown up from their side? And the point I'm trying to make is, we need to make certain that we're always bringing the right number to sh show up. And as we just went through, for most of you, if legal is going to be in the game later. Who are the two people who have the greatest likelihood to screw up your deal? Besides your salesperson or you know, maybe yourself. Who, who else? Lawyer. Legal and purchasing. And so we try to shove them down into the corner until the very end. And then we're surprised when they, when they cut our line. The best thing that you can do is bring them in early. The best thing you can do is say, look, if we even have a relationship, and this goes further than our first conversation, in our second conversation, we just assume that you brought your legal counsel and your purchasing. Based on a lot of experience and based on your deadlines, I can assure you right now, we'll get more done faster if we bring them in earlier. And they say, well, we don't really like to do it that way. I understand. I really do. But, you know, my firm's been around for this period of time. We've got a lot of experience at this. I think you'll be happier if we do. And I have um, one client right now who has made it a requirement. If you won't do that, that, that kicks you out of the target filter. Because they, they're just tired of losing the purchasing. They've been losing the purchasing for a while, so they stopped doing it. They say, purchasing has to come early. And if they won't come early, then we're not going to bid. No? Okay. Are you missing anybody? Who are the highest level, highest leverage members of your boat? Who's the best people that you have to have? Do you have all of them? Can you circle the three that are going to make the biggest difference to you winning or losing a deal? 
And who do they line up with? Anybody missing from your boat? Most of the time when we go through this exercise, we find that people don't always have the right players. You know, we suffer from looking at all deals of having somewhat equal value. And I've watched clients do this for many years, where we take the willing and available instead of the strong and the capable. Right? And the problem is we have to take our strong and our capable to win the big deals. When they say that you're as strong as your weakest link, if you're taking your weakest link to the deal, possibilities you're going to lose. People say, well, it'll hurt their feelings. Really? You know, it hurts my feelings not having a job. I find it a nutrition issue. You know? You know so I would rather have gainful employment for them and let them... Do. By the way, the other thing is some of your best pitching people are not necessarily your strongest operations people. Doing and talking about it are not the same thing. Right? Okay. Let's take a break. Okay. Um, five till? So it's right now. It's five till, so ten after. If you're not getting the... Once you figure out how you're going to keep score, which is the movement pipeline, and now it comes down to what should go into the pipeline. Part of that is there has to be a prominence around the resources. Do you know what your close rate is? Do you know what your average close rate is? It's not 97%. That was mine. Do <laughs> <laughs> you know what your close rate is? 10, we've kind of answered some of this. On the who hunts, if it's whales, what we call the 4% strategy, which I'll explain in a minute, who hunts? Who hunts whales? Executive team. Executive team hunts whales. Who hunts mid-sized accounts? Harpooner, shaman, and SMEs. Who wants the small accounts? Harpooner or inside sales? Well, they tell. I've watched organizations do this as well. 
They've taken the C and the D and actually put together an inside sales group that manages that primarily by phone. So you know what, it's just, I don't want to forego the revenue, but I don't want to service it as expensively as I have been. Okay? Now, we call the top of the triangle, and it's not beneath me to do diamonds, triangles, circles, two by twos. Now, if you're a sales consultant, it's really important at some point that you draw an arrow going up and to the right. Right? You just got to. That's, that's the only way you could be. A, you know, that's what you got to do to you be a sales consultant. So yeah. Thanks. Appreciate. I like the fact that somebody's keeping score. That's good. So, so good. So um, get out the form and put five now because that'll be good. Right. There's always room for improvement. Wow. Wow. That's never good. But. But you digress. Okay, so. <laughs> All right. 4% strategy says somewhere across town in a hotel, your competitor somewhere across this country is sitting in a room having a strategy meeting. And they're saying to themselves, who should we target in the marketplace? And some genius comes up with the idea, you know what we got to do? We got to take the top 20% of the market. We're going to go after the big stuff this year. We're really going to, we're, yeah. How many times, you don't have to confess your own sins. Do you know other people have done this? Right? As though this is some sort of lightning bolt of thought. That, you know, what big things would be better for us. The problem is big things aren't always better for you. You have to get the right fit and the right opportunity. We call that the 4% strategy. Which means if you split it 80-20, Pareto's rule, 80% of the business comes from 20% of the opportunities. If you split the market that way, what if you took the right 20% of the 20%? Now, I don't mean the very tip-top. I mean the stuff that suits you the best. Have you ever lost a deal that you were furious you lost the deal because you genuinely knew you could have done great work for that company? Yes. And you knew they'd made a mistake. Yes. And you're like, oh, man, what didn't we do? I mean, we are the fit for them. Those are your 4% deals. Not that you lost them. I think you've probably gotten those deals as well. Where you're like, man, I am stoked. We are going to do great work for them, and we're going to make money. But we're going to go do really good work for them. That's the 4%. So now I want you to turn to page 12, because I want us to fill out a target filter. Now, we build target filters. <coughs> part of a business acceptance process, which basically goes back to how much resource are we going to dedicate, right? Heaven and Earth, Harpooners, Smees, and Shaman, or just Harpooners. So we want to filter out opportunities to try to understand which opportunities are going to give us the greatest chance of success. Because we don't want to stay in deals. Look, let me put it this way. Let me ask you a question. Would you stay and pitch a deal that you only had a 15% chance of winning? How about 20? No. 25? That's what the options are. Yeah. Depends on the yeah. benefit. It also depends on what else is going on at the time. That's exactly right. You know, the problem is, you know how you drive a dog insane? You change the length of his chain every day. <laughs> you change the length of his chain every day. So he doesn't know what his territory is. You know how you drive salespeople insane? Same way. Right? 
what's acceptable or what's not acceptable to the firm tends to lever on this little thing called it depends. What did it depend on? Well, it depended on how we did last month. It depended on how much work we have in the shop. It depended on whether we have margin. It depended on how far we are to our credit line. It depends, it depends, it depends. So unfortunately, we leave the salesperson out there chasing everything like a one-eyed dog in a butcher shop, and we hold the cards all back here that say whether I'll take it or not. And then we're surprised when they're getting a little bit frustrated. Last week you told me I could... Yeah, but that was last week. This week we can't take it. Last week terms were 45 days. This week they're 30 days. Has anybody seen this? Yes. Have you ever perpetuated this sin? Yes? Other people's sins. Oh, other people's sins. You want to give a system that helps everybody in the organization know what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. What kind of business you want what kind of business you don't. Our target filter we have here is a big sales target filter. We look at what our, and I just have A's and C's. You could do A, B, C, and D. And when we work with clients, we do. But just for the purpose of time, we just do the two so that there's a great enough difference that you can compare them. Now, remember, B's and C's we want, right? We want B's and C's. This is not a matter of I don't want the business. It's how do I want to spend my resources to go acquire the business. So we use a set of categories, and then we use a rubric. We create a scorecard to evaluate them. Uh, in our case, for example, first indicator is the revenue of the firm. This is, this is our own target filter. For me, an A is a 10 to $100 million firm. A B is $100 million to 250 A C is less than 10 And a D is greater than 250 Now, that doesn't seem like a very straight line, does it? Why? Because the size of the firm dictates heavily my ability to make a difference for them. Um, as a matter of fact, we're going to change that ultimately to the number of salespeople. If you get into a field sales force that's greater than about 100, our, our system it becomes very difficult to manage that way. There are other models that are better. We would do better in concentrated smaller sales forces. Sales forces between 5 and about 50 is, is a great sales force for Hunt Big Sales for this kind of approach. Because they don't all work. I mean, you just got to know what you're good at. Success history. We like to work with profitable, sustained, functioning companies. We don't like people who put fun in dysfunction. Doesn't make a lot of sense. So C for us is a turnaround, a startup, or a failing firm. And as you go down the list, you'll see that these things differ from simply money questions. They're questions about culture and about business approach. Changes, limiters and change events. One of the things I'd like you to keep in mind, no trigger, no event. There's no trigger, there's no event. If there's no cause, there's no effect. If there's no reason for them to change, they won't change. Let me ask you a question. How many of you um, respond to RFPs? Yeah? What percentage of RFPs, and if you, since you read the book, right, you can't answer, but, and probably Dan can't either, but we have a book out called RFPs Suck. Okay, which, as you might imagine, it's actually going pretty well. Um, it really is. You know, it's, it's, and, it's, and candidly, it's a, it's a really good book. It's a great seminar. I do it. It's um, not because I do it, but it's the, the content when people come away, they're like, wow, that makes a lot of sense. What percentage of RFPs um, do, has the decision been made who's going to win before it ever goes out? Half. 90%. 74. Pardon? I'll ask the questions. 
Yeah, there's two studies. There's two studies I'm going to quote today. One of them is done by Princeton. One of them is called the Harvard Hurdle. Um, so, 74%. What percentage of RFPs ultimately go to the incumbent solution? Meaning, if I'm doing it in a house, I keep it in house. Meaning, if I'm doing it outside, whoever I'm doing it with, I do it. 85%. 83. 83. 83. Why? Because the path of least resistance is comfort. A lot of it is the transition costs and fear. Yeah. People have tremendous fear. What if I made the wrong decision? So to make it work, and we'll cover this in a little bit, you have to have a value proposition that has at least an 8 to 14% difference greater than what they're doing now. You have to show value that's at least 8 to 14% greater. It's called the Harvard Hurdle. We call it the Harvard Hurdle. 8 to 14% greater than what they're getting now. Now, I'll do the value equation here in a minute. So, you know, how do you, how do you calculate that? Um, we actually, with our clients, we want to, there's a, there's a very complex calculation, and there's a real simple one. Guess which one we're going to work on, right? The complex one. <laughs> and that would be mostly not right, okay? <laughs> so, but it's not an ID10T problem, okay? I just, just want to be very clear about that. So we're going to pick what we're going to work on, but what I want you to keep in mind is <coughs> MBAs in the room? We got MBAs? They're not here. Oh, this is wasted, man. By two by two is wasted. All right. Think of this as a balanced scorecard. We ask questions about business opportunities related to money, right? Revenue, is it recurring? Margin, stuff like that, right? We also ask questions about the work. Does it hit our sweet spot? Is stuff we've done before? Is it going to stretch us? Is it going to make us different? What's the timing of this? <clears throat> How much materials are we going to have? Right? We ask those questions. But we also have, as owners, questions in our head about who in the world are we working with? What kind of company is this? Are they reputable? Um, is there any cachet to them? Meaning that if I get that business, do I wind up looking good to another company who goes, wow, you, you're working with Microsoft. You must be pretty good. Do they, um, are they litigious? Do they pay their bills? Company questions. And then there are people questions. Who are the people we're going to work with? Do I think they're fair? Are they honest? Are they decent? Meaning would I spent what I, I drive from Pittsburgh to Philly with them and not have to kill them along the way? The people that we have any chemistry with. In that department or area, is there a whole bunch of turnover, which means I'm going to spend my adult life training. Every time I turn around, I've got to go train a new person. The problem is, we typically take a piece of business for these two boxes. But we leave a piece of business for these two boxes. Either we get fired or we quit. We sometimes do it if the left side changes. So if this changes, we might leave as well. If the money's no good anymore, the work's not appropriate, we might leave. So we have to have a balanced scorecard of what we're evaluating in our target filter. 
Okay? So, I'd like you to look at building on page 13, your own target filter. I'd like you to take your whale. I, what do you think a whale would be, Ian, in first year revenue for you? Half a million. Half a million, right? A million and a half. A million and a half? $12,000. It's very precise. It's a very small whale. Right? <laughs> you have to get a lot of whales. You have to get a lot of them. We have a small target. Clearly. Clearly. Dick? Five million. Twenty thousand. Twenty? Two million. Two million. Half a million bucks. Quarter million. Quarter million. Do it. Fifty, right? Cool. All right. Put that at the top. That's the whale you're thinking about. That's an A. That would be an A. Just as the first thing we're thinking about is money. If we just said, okay, it's got to be of a certain size. i got to be able to generate a certain amount for it to be an A. Then you want to think about what's your first indicator. Could it be the size of the firm? Could it be where they're located? Could it be the fact that you have a referral from them? That you've done work with them in the past? What's the first indicator as to whether they're a good lead for you or not? Then you're going to want to think about change drivers. What triggered them to be willing to talk to you? Some folks like it when they say, you know what triggered them is they're really mad at my competition right now. They, they just got burned. Or they've been told that they have to go offshore, go onshore, cut costs by 8%. What's the trigger that makes you interesting to them? Now, I come from a school of belief that says lazy salespeople are the best salespeople ever. Because lazy salespeople don't want to make multiple sales. They don't want to come up to David and say, David, you don't know how you have a need. So the first sale I'm going to do is I'm going to make you believe you have a need. All right? Second thing is I'm going to make you believe, I'm going to sell again, that you can't solve that need internally. And the third sale I'm going to make is that I'm the right company that you should be, should be buying from to solve that need. That's three sales. That's too many sales. See, I believe if there's a trigger, which means I know I have a need, I'm already down a path. Meaning it's likely I'll know that they have budget. I don't have to go create it for them. I mean, creating budgets for people sucks, particularly in this marketplace. If you get nothing else out of today, which I think I've only said six or seven times, I'm going to say this again. In this marketplace, people do not buy what they want or what they need. They buy what they can defend. People do not buy what they want or what they need. They buy what they can defend. Who are they defending to? Everybody. Owners. They're defending to their co-workers. Believe it or not, they have to defend to the vendor. They're just going to fire. It has to be defensible. So the change driver has to be sufficient enough that change is possible. Buying process. Is it sophisticated? Who has to be in it? Buyer's table. Who do you want? Your best opportunities, your A's, Who's, in the buyers, who's at the buyer's table for you? We just got done working through that exercise. And organizational alignment. How do they have to think as an organization to be a good fit for you? What has to be important to them? And then I want you to create some categories for yourself out of these extra pieces. Now, the hardest work is to go top to bottom, is to, add, is to add categories. And the easiest work is to score them left to right. 
So I would encourage you to do the hard work first. You should have at least this number of categories. A couple things to keep in mind. Less is more. You want a filter that screens out the vast, vast majority of the market for your A. Your A's got to be sweet. Really, not a lot of companies should fit your A category. Two, not everything's equal, which means that you will, if you do this as a business acceptance process, you will weight certain things as being more valuable than others. You know, money might be three times as valuable as something else. And finally, there's no such thing as a perfect whale. Even your ideal A's are going to have a couple things that score out as a B. Does that make sense? Okay, go. We're going to take probably eight minutes to do that. or the chairman of WPP, which is the largest ad agency holding company in the world. They do about $14 billion a year. I had a chance to see him speak about two months ago. And he talked about the death of creativity is at the hands of procurement. And it's true. Um, I had somebody to give me a piece of advice about procurement lately. And I really i am stewing on it because I, I like it. So I'm, I'm going to share it with you. But I wouldn't say that I'm endorsing it yet, but I like it. They said, I don't mind working with procurement who leaves the price alone and asks for more value for it. I don't like procurement who tries to move the price and doesn't care about value. Because my answer is, I can give you more for the same amount of money, but I can't give you the same for less. Isn't that interesting? It's just a thought process. So he goes through, we're going to do good to great questions here in a minute. He goes through a series of questions to figure out where, where procurement likes to play. And it helps define for him what his initial starting price is going to be. Interesting. It's an interesting approach. What's hard about this? What's hard about this? Can you just Google the answers to all these questions? No. I tell you where the rub's going to be for me is on that uh, organizational alignment. Um, a target that I'm going to be looking at personally is going to be different than, than uh, my consultants. Because um, someone that I'm going to be fascinated and interesting to work with is going to be a high priority for me, um, which probably won't be for several of the people I have out there. Hmm. More about the money. To them or to you? To them. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. Well, it, it, it begs the question, um, what, are you in, are you in, and Dan, I don't mean this to be insulting, but are you in, which, by the way, when anything before but is a lie, you ever notice that? Give <laughs> yeah. it to me, man. Are you, talk about it at Thanksgiving dinner. Are you in this thing for intellectual stimulation or economic <laughs> reward? Um, probably, at my age, a little bit of both. Probably more so of, of uh, enjoying what I'm doing. Then you need to hire people who think like that. Or you just need to suffer through being rich. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's not the point. I mean, I like, if I'm going to engage with a particular client, it's going to be someone that I'm going to enjoy working with that really holds my interest and um, more so than about the, the cash. Then it's going to be the difference between an institutional A and a personal A. Okay. 
So when you're putting through for your custom, for your consultants or people who are selling in, in your organization that are not you, you would score an A in a way that would be financially rewarding to them. In your case, you might rebalance the scorecard to say, I really like these people. I really like what we can do for them. I'm not going to subject my consultants to it. You might take a different view of the resources. Instead of looking at the resources to pitch it, you might stay instead say, what will the resources be to do the work? I will take this I account. Gotcha. I got Because I like this okay. account. All right. Okay. okay. Thanks. Okay. We don't get to Google this stuff. It's not easy. What else did you find that's hard about this? Getting the proper list of categories. Mm-hmm. See, I'm trying to unroll the bar, the, the ball of uh, yarn that is your history. Right. See, all this stuff has been learned by trial and error for the most part. Maybe not your own. You may have watched somebody else or even heard it in a Vistage meeting. But for the most part, it's been school of hard knocks that has caused you to create this filter. But if you can get your organization to share this filter, I can tell you one of the best things you can do, um, I've got a series of exercises we're going to go through, this one and two more. It is really valuable to have your sales retreat or your management retreat and try to build a target filter. You'll be shocked how little similarity there is inside your firm about what people think is acceptable business. It can be frightening, but it can also be very helpful. What is an A to the firm? What is a B to the firm? What is a C to the firm? Okay? Yeah. Yes, sir. Well, one thing that was hard for me is, I mean, the, the C opportunity, let's say, which is the one that's more common compared to the whale, they're built differently on their side of the table than an A is. So, you know, they have to think differently about all of this stuff. Yeah. And so when you score them, what makes them is really about their thought process. Right. Which... Thought process isn't always related to sophistication, but it often is. How long have they been in business? How fast have they grown? Are they the kind of firm that's... We actually go through a, a set where we'll say, are they bureaucratic? Are they uh, resource constrained? Are they entrepreneurial? Or are they fast growth? And when you look at that and around resources and collaboration, you start to come to a conclusion, which is we have to pitch differently to different firms based on the culture and where they are in their life cycle. The life cycle of becoming fast growth or never going to achieve fast growth. Right? Um, this is a lot about great questions. You're going to have to edit. I ask you to find a blank page because this isn't in your book. So maybe page 11. Remember we talked about Texas Hold'em? And two-card questions, questions that help you decide whether or not we should stay in or get out early. problem is, we've, t- we've stopped teaching the art of question asking to our sales staff. And we have to rely on their instincts. I'm going to teach you six cheats to turn any good question into a great question. Good questions into great questions. Now, for a question to be a great question, it has to have three criteria. Number one... A great question should credentialize you. I mean, have you ever, right, have you ever asked a question of a client and said, I hadn't thought about that. That's a really good question. Mm-hmm. Right. What did that do automatically? It elevated you in their mind. They, they went, whoa, you know, I'm now working with somebody who's an expert. 
unfortunately, they forget to weigh that against themselves. And maybe I'm just an idiot, you know. But you know, th their thought process is no. That now I'm working with an expert. Okay. Second thing, a great question should give us information that helps us in our target filter. Should give us information that helps us in our target filter. Third thing, a great question should do is it should give us information our competition wouldn't normally get. should give us information our competition wouldn't normally get. Would you agree that your likelihood to sell someone goes, based, goes up based on the amount of information you have and the amount of trust you're able to win? Absolutely. Those are the two things. Information and trust are crucial. If you can get both, great, at the same time. But we definitely want to be gathering information that not everybody else has. So let me give you six cheats. Cheat number one. In the past. This is an opening to almost any question. In the past six months. In the last year. The last time you put this out for bid. And what am I going to ask? Lots of things in the, in the past. In the past, who ultimately signed the contract? If you were to pick the three factors that were most important in your selection of one firm versus another, what would they have been? Last year when you got involved with this, at what point in time did procurement get engaged? In the past, how often have you replaced the incumbent vendor? Don't I want to know these things? Right? In the, one of my favorites. In the last year, has your company purchased something that wasn't the lowest cost? And if so, why? I want to know. Look, if we're never going to be the lowest cost, the lowest price, and they only purchase the lowest price, don't I want to know that now? What percentage of the time are you getting the answer on that question? All of it. Almost invariably, they stop and they think of something they bought in the firm. Not what the firms bought, what they bought. And they'll tell you why. And when they do, that gives me an idea about how they measure price and value. What their thought process is. They didn't like the reputation of the firm. They thought they were getting low-balled and they'd come back with more expense. I didn't like the contract. All of this is information. Whatever the answer is, good, bad, or different, is information. All we're trying to do is collect it. In the past... Two, what has changed? What has changed? You know, i got to tell you, what has changed is a great question, particularly if you haven't had a chance to be in front of somebody in a while or they wouldn't let you in. Mr. Jones, we've had an interest in working with your firm for some time. And we haven't really had a good opportunity up till now, but clearly something's changed. What's changed in your firm that makes sense for us to talk to you now? Here's my other one that I really like. You know, Mr. Jones, we've bid on your work three times. And each time we've always come in second. What has changed that would make me believe we have a good shot at winning this time? Because if the answer is nothing, go home. It's all with two cards. Yeah. 
Fold the two cards. The third one, which comes out, is on the what has changed. When I ask somebody what's changed, I love this answer. I've been told we've got to go to minority business enterprise. I've been told we've got to go to women business enterprise, DAV enterprise. I've been told that we've got to go green. I've been told we've got to diversify. I've been told we've got to go offshore. I've been told we've got to go domestic. I've been told we've got to consolidate. I've been told we have to diversify and change the number of vendors that we have. Ever had any of that happen? Why do you like that? Because that's you. Never is. Could be. <laughs> Could be. Change is being driven from the top. Exactly. This is an institutional agenda, not a departmental agenda. And whoever gets closest to the institutional agenda is going to win. Whoever gets closest to the institutional agenda is going to win. The other thing is if nothing has changed, no trigger, no event. No trigger, no event. Okay? Third, what has your most recent experience taught you or what did you learn? What do we learn from? Our mistakes. Now, people, like I gotta tell you, like to look backwards because they feel like in this day of the internet that everything's kind of public record. So the amount of stuff that they'll tell you in an historical point of view is huge, almost irresponsible. Because their assumption is, well, I'm sure it's out there somewhere, and they'll tell you. Sarbanes-Oxley as well helps. All those things that cause transparency into corporations trains them that this either has to be or could be part of the public record. So you can ask them. You know, last time your firm brought on a, a, an organization to do castings, um, what did that teach you and what did you learn? I want to know where the landmines are. If they learn from their mistakes, I want to know those right away. If they didn't learn anything, please see previous comment about no trigger, no event. See, if they haven't learned anything, it means that the mistake wasn't big enough to cause them to do something different. Or, always or never. Now, this one kind of violates my rules. So I'm going to say that up front. Because I ask them, what do you always want to see in a new partner? What do you never want to see in a new partner? And usually I get the same answers. Well, I always want the bill to match the contract. I never want to be surprised. You can't go over my head and talk to my boss without talking to me. I always want the team that pitched me to be the team that does the work. I don't want to meet people who aren't going to be involved in my account. Anybody heard these? And others. Now, if I know what those answers are probably going to be, two things. One, if I don't know, that's great because that's a, that's a new piece of information. But if it is that, what am I going to do with that? I'm going to increase trust because I'm going to send them a note back that says, Mr. Jones, you said the following things that you always want to see and you never want to see. I've taken the liberty of asking my organization if they're willing to meet this first set of commitments, and the answer is yes. And I put it in writing, and then I put it in the proposal because I'm going to demonstrate an unnatural act. I'm going to demonstrate I listened, right? So always or never. Fifth. Ranges and high lows. This is about price. And I want to talk about price and kind of a take a minute to talk about price a little bit. Well, David, you ever you bought something big, right? What's your organization doing, Mike? Uh, resell used equipment. It was a long time ago. Okay. Yeah. 
So you're buying this equipment from somebody, right? Right. Yeah. And when you go in and ask them how much it's going to be, what do they say? They usually say they're looking for us to set that standard, give them some insights to what we think it's worth. I'm looking for two words, so I probably need to ask until I get them. It depends. Yeah. Those are the two I was looking for. Okay. It depends. Right? And when somebody asks you how much it's going to cost, you're going to say typically, it depends. Let me ask you a question. Is it depends a trust-building phrase? Why doesn't that build trust? Because it's still the answer. First of all, the, one of the first opportunities you've given me to give a straight answer to a straight question, and I equivocate. Secondly, you think I'm counting how much money's in your pocket. It depends on what? It depends on how much I can get from you. That's a lousy perspective. If we believe trust and information are the, are the cornerstones of how we're going to sell, starting off, and by the way, I don't know about you, but I'm finding I get, to, I get to price almost before I sit down anymore. I mean, it's ridiculous. We move to price very quickly. Here's the problem. What is price? Is price a qualifying question on their part or a disqualifying question? It's a disqualifying question. Price when price is asked early is usually not asked by the polar bear. Price is asked by the screener to figure out if they can disqualify you so they can get down to the three finals that they have to bring to the polar bear. That's the only purpose of the, of the price questions to disqualify. So you have to do a couple things. First of all, my question would be, Lee, let's let's play. Okay. Now I like you to play straight up if you don't mind. I want you to fight your inner instincts. So he's just giving me a bunch of crap. Just help me, you know, okay? All right. This is getting fun. Well, I'm just curious whether it's possible. So, <laughs> so are we? So is everybody else? So are we? <laughs> okay. So, so I come into you, and 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 you're going to buy something for me, and you say, Tim, how much is it? Tim, how much is it? It's a great question. <clears throat> um, I'm going to tell you how much it is. Look, do you know how much you're spending for it now? I do. Okay. In this industry, plus or minus three to four percent, it's all out on the internet. We're all about the same price. So whatever you're spending on it now, that's roughly what my price is going to be, plus or minus three percent. But you know what? My guess is you don't have me here because what you're paying is getting what you want. Are you getting what you want? No, no. Okay. So if you're going to get something different in a marketplace that's transparent, you're going to have to pay something different to get something. Now, I'm not saying more, I'm saying different. It might be higher, it might be lower. Now, that's going to be something we're going to have to talk about. But if you have to have a starting place, whatever you're paying right now is probably competitively priced. Are you willing to still pay that? Yeah, if I get what I need to get. Super. Then we have a basis to talk. You know how much it costs, then, right? Sure. All right. Now, Lee, help me. Since you know it's in your budget, and you know that I'm going to be within 3 or 4%, I mean, are we talking about a half a million dollars or are we talking about $750,000? We're talking about half a million dollars. So you're around a half a million bucks, somewhere in there. That, that's close enough for me. Okay? We can probably do the work for right around that. And the more I know about the work, the tighter I can bring that. So I'll tell you what. We're going to be somewhere between four hundred and $600,000 to do exactly what you're doing now. And we're going to be somewhat different than 500000 to do something different. Is that fair? Sure. Okay. Now, what am I doing in that conversation? Keeping myself qualified to play along. I haven't committed to a price. I've laid down a couple of factors and said, this is going to matter over time. 
and I've got to collect some data. I've also said, as long as when we agreed that it was going to be inside of his budget, I was going to be close to his budget, I earned the right to ask him roughly what his budget was going to be. Because if I said I'm going to be within 3 or 4%, I can ask the range question, say, look, at firm your size, it usually is 4% of the total or 5% of the total revenues. You're a $20 million firm. Your budget's probably about a million dollars for this, give or take. Is that right? Well, you'll find you get a lot of answers to that question if you ask it that way, if you put it into that position. Does that make sense? What I didn't like on what I heard was it's going to be the same price, only it's going to be different. Well, I, I didn't want you to like it. And I'll tell you why. Because what I want to have... push me away. No, I want to have the right to stay, but I don't want to set the marker that I'm going to be cheaper. What I also want to do is I want to remind you that you're not happy. See, I want to remind you that that trigger was meaningful to you. That that half million dollars wasn't getting you what you want. And I want to put the seed in that you might have to pay more or different to get what you want. Because I don't plan on just playing in this conversation. I plan on coming back. And when I come back, I want that seed to germinate a little bit so that it's not shocking. If I do come back at 550 or 560, does that make sense? Sure. <laughs> not, not feeling the love, eh? No. The picture it's a lie. That's right. That's right. That's not totally true either. Well, that's just so much information. Okay. Okay, six. <coughs> you didn't let us down, did you? Pardon? Lee never lets us down. Perfect. Perfect. Um, Liz, if you ask a woman how old are you, um, according to the Gallup Poll Organization, you're going to have less than a 60% chance of getting them to tell you. But if you ask them, are you 18 to 24, 25 to 34, 35 to 44, 45 to 54, 55 or older, they will tell you. Because that's a question they're comfortable answering, because it's in a list. Now, you can ask questions in lists, and there's lots of lists that you can use. And I'll let you let your imagination run on that, but I've got a list that I like to work with. And that I found to be very successful. I got to figure out somebody who I understand that just enough of their business to be able to. Yeah, there's without a doubt centrifugal casting is it's my game. I mean, right. sure, my family grew up doing that in Nebraska. Okay, so we're going to try. Do you know reasons why people will buy from you? Why do people buy from you? Dissatisfied with current suppliers. Okay. Why? What's, what's dissatisfied? Doesn't work. Too high a failure rate. Doesn't last long enough. Durability, reliability. Delivery? Delivery is important. Delivery is important. Okay. So, Ian, we're glad that we could be here. You know, there's obviously a lot of reasons why you might consider talking to Miller. Um, I found that folks usually come down to one of several reasons what, what they're looking for. Oftentimes, it's because they're really dissatisfied with what they got meaning that they're not getting the quality of product that they need and that that means they're having failure or reliability issues. Sometimes that's the issue. Sometimes the issue is because they're not getting delivery on time. And every minute that they're down is a minute that they're not able to make money. i got to tell you, we have a 98.5% delivery rate. So I'm real proud of what we've been able to do because it's in response to what our clients need, which is better delivery. Third, we have folks who have more complex needs than they used to have. So now they've got special things that they need. And we get asked because we've got a lot of business expertise in this industry, 
And for these three firms, these three steel firms, we were able to put in some pretty amazing stuff pretty quickly. Fourth, sometimes people just ask us because they need three bits. They understand that. They just got to do that. Are we here? What's most important to you? Which one of those is most important to you? Or is it something else? Well, delivery is very critical. So delivery is the most important thing to you. I like what you said about the 98.5%. That's very uh, very good. Is it accurate? <laughs> sure it is. It is as of right now. <laughs> All right. Okay. Is there anything else? Well, if we have a problem, it's important to me that we get uh, somebody to come in and help solve the problem. Okay. So you need on-site service. You don't just need lip service by phone. Right. You need somebody who's willing to put humans on site. Okay, that's good to know. And actually, we do. That's part of our service plan, so that's great. No problems. Anything else? I think that's it. Okay, super. Now, what did I get out of that question? His pain. In priority. Yeah. I got his pain in priority. I also got what is not his pain. Which means in my proposals and my communication, I can focus heavily on the stuff he cares about and disregard the stuff. Not eliminate, but go much smaller on the stuff he doesn't care about. Okay? What's the third thing I got to do with that question? Position yourself as the solution. Credentialize myself. I got to sell without selling. I mean, in essence, the way that I answered the question was really just part of the way I asked the question. I'm just saying, look, this is stuff we do. This is why I know. The reason I know your, your pain is because I've done it before. But at the same time, I'm throwing out 98.5% on deliverability, and he's going, wow, okay, that's a good number. That's a good number. I started to do what? Make promises. I started to make promises based on my brand. That's what I want to be able to do in that question, is create what the right list is. And the list will help people. The other thing you've got to understand, it just kills me. Surprising number of clients don't know what their problem is. They have you in because of, let's say, deliverability. And, and, and in Ian's case, the straw broke the camel's back. We had just one more time. If I had that, and then it did. He said, doggone it, I'm going to bring somebody else in. So they bring us in, but you know what? Now I've opened up the possibility that Ian has more problems that I could solve. So now he's going, okay, great, I was here for the deliverability, but you know what, the reliability is an interesting thing. And the guy talked about complex. We, as a matter of fact, have gotten a couple of deals recently that are going to involve some different stuff than we've done before. So I'm generating interest in tilling the ground. So I have something to talk about. Yes? Okay, that's good to great questions. Any thoughts about that? These are, by the way, also fun to do in sales meetings, organizational meetings. Candidly, if you start to build your sales process, when, when I, I have a, a client I work with who's got a 15-step sales process, and what we did is literally put good to great questions, questions we were looking for and what we needed the answers to be in about seven of the steps because we just knew we would have to know this at this point. So when I have to know, I have the question tools so that they can go ask. They've got 11 salespeople, so... I mean, not, um, not impossible to manage, you know, in terms of getting people to do the same things. Okay, page 14. Page 14. Have you ever found yourself talking to your staff and saying, we just need to get everybody on the same page? 
Anybody ever said the same, used the same page in a sentence? We got to get everybody on the same page. Yes. And then you don't have a page. Well, isn't it amazing? We don't. We say we got to get everybody on the same page. And what's the page? The page is the page du jour. It's whatever page we thought of right then. And the answer is to your quote. Yeah. To the quote for the cartoon for the day, I'd like you to form an exploratory committee to find the answer I have in mind. You know, that's what we're really looking for is them to get on our page. So when I work with clients, I've got a book coming out called How Much Difference Does Your Difference Make? And it's around asking these four questions. And I've worked with now probably, gosh, over 500 CEOs. And when I ask these questions, by and large, CEOs don't like their own answers. And we wind up working through it. And we're going to take a chunk of time to do that today. Because this is valuable, ultimately, in terms of finding one page and an elevator pitch that makes sense. So I'm going to ask you to follow along with me on page 14. And I want you to answer the first question, which is, what business problem do you solve? What business problem do you solve? Now, just so we're clear, 99% of CEOs think in terms of features and benefits. Because somewhere along the line, we told them features and benefits was what we're supposed to be thinking about. But that's not the business problem we solve. Business problems are about time, money, or risk. So if it's not about time, money, or risk, and I'm, I'm willing to admit that time and risk are functions of money, but if it's not about time, money, or risk, you're not solving a business problem. So Paul, what business problem do you solve? Well, we actually solve two, but I'm pretty sure about money. Yeah, help me a little more. What, what money are you solving for? By, by doing our work for them, getting them out in the marketplace, uh, we help them generate sales and sales results. So you increase sales? Yes, sir. Okay. So that's what's the other problem you solve? Um, a lot of times we'll work with clients that are in trouble where their image and reputation is at risk, and so we help them mitigate risk. Okay, which allows them to have business continuity. Yes, exactly. Okay, so you solve both your problems or money problems. Yes. Okay, cool. Dan? Um, we solve bus seat issues. We get people on the right seat in the bus. We create alignment in the organization. What business problem does that solve? Um, all three. Yeah, but be specific. What business problem does that solve? What's the outcome of not having you? What does it mean if I don't have you in my organization? Things won't run as smooth. So what business problem does that create? What business problem does that create? Yeah, things not running smoothly. What business problem does that create? Lack of efficiency. So you solve a money problem. Mm -hmm. right? You solve a productivity problem. Mm -hmm. You solve a delivery problem. Mm -hmm. Okay. Sounds like you might even solve a turnover problem if I went far enough. Absolutely. Okay. But I'm it isn't a pain point in this economy <clears throat> currently. Well, efficiency is, mm -hmm. right? Because if you're looking at GDP and you're looking at what's going I mean, everything that's going on is we're still pushing for efficiency inside of a decreased amount of labor force. Mm -hmm. So to me... Efficiency is, is pretty damn valuable, mm -hmm. right? Okay. We're going to eliminate misfires on hiring. Mm -hmm. 
Okay? So the business problem you solve is about getting an organization to run at maximum efficiency to increase profit. Mm -hmm. Okay. Isn't that a better business problem? It's not a bus and seats problem. It's a right. profit problem. Right. See, the closer you get to the profit, the better the likelihood is that somebody's going to care about you. Okay. Right? Mm -hmm. What business problem do you solve, Tom? By the way, write the stuff that you like because you're going to use it in a little bit. If you don't like it, then write it in. Well, <laughs> certainly on the risk side, um, that's one of the primary reasons that, that clients come to us is uh, they have their whole internal production, ops, whatever function to generate the money that drives their company. Uh, they tend to look at times outside to things like law firms for analysis of risk and risk reduction. So and what business so problem do you solve? I, I solve? I solve them uh, not losing the farm in, in their transactions. Okay. So well, we'll, come, we'll come back to that. I think there's, there's more there we can play with. And there's, there's, uh, I mean, money certainly plays into it. Um, some of the discussions we were having earlier about where's the deal fall apart is it, is it when it gets to the lawyers, the uh, people, once we get into some of those issues, then that will affect their pricing. So what business problem you solve and then buy? So let me give you, so we help companies avoid pitfalls they can't even see that would damage them financially and by reputation by examining the legal risks associated with the documents that create relationships. The, the, the documents and they are buying our familiarity with the transaction that they're entering that perhaps they've done a few times and we see every day. We'll get to that in a minute. Aren't they also buying your familiarity into the access of the legal system? All who you know? Not as much. I mean, like, who you know? Like, I know the judge. You're, yeah, that's part of it. All of that. Uh, How you're connected as a law firm or individually. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I've been thinking about this more from my side of the business, which is corporate and transactional. The, the litigation <coughs> side after it hits the fan is, is kind of a different arena. But certainly people... Well, even on the litigation side, your network there and who you know and how you're connected. Right? Yeah, there's, it's perhaps even more important than it is on the planning side. Okay. So would you just say like risk mitigation, risk minimization? Yeah, but but until until but here's the problem is until you quantify the value, you haven't really given a message. Right. Messages have to be three things. I haven't given this to you before, so let me give it to you now. For an effective harpoon to be created, it has to be three things. It has to be provocative. It has to be compelling, and it has to be defensible. The message has to be provocative. Why provocative? It's got to give me the hope of something much better. It's got to be compelling, which means i got to believe you could actually do what you say you're going to do in your provocative message. And it's got to be defensible, which means i got to be able to prove it to others. 
So when I'm the whale and I receive this message, it needs to be provocative, compelling, and defensible. When we say risk mitigation, it's not quite provocative enough. It's actually compelling and it's very defensible. But the problem is we don't break down a door until we have provocative in there. Tom knows about that problem. All these inside jokes, I miss them. Okay. Ian, what business problem do you solve? Uh, mill productivity. Steel mill, hot, hot steel mill productivity. Okay. So that's who you solve for. Now, productivity. What co what causes a lack of productivity? Downtime. Okay. All right. Let's go to the second question, because they go together. second question is, for whom do you solve this problem uniquely? For whom do you solve this problem uniquely? What I'm looking for, in essence, is a distillation of your target filter. Think of it this way. What type of firm, what level of individual, and what condition of awareness? What type of firm, what level of individual, what condition of awareness? So for Fortune 500 companies who have a chief sales officer and know that their current process is not yielding them transparent, predictable pipeline results, we X. Okay? That would be an example. Who is your ideal buyer? Ed, who's your ideal buyer? Somebody with a substantial net worth looking for higher returns. How much net worth? What's so, the floor? Ten to fifty million. So for for high net worth individuals in a range of ten to fifty million dollars in available assets. Anything else? Are they in the Pittsburgh area? Most likely. In the Pittsburgh area. Okay. Who know what? Why why would they pick you? What do they need that you provide better than other equity firms? Returns. They need higher returns. So they need higher returns or reliable returns? It's not reliable in my business. Well, what, because I almost always have an equity person in a Vistage meeting. I have had people say to me, we're not flashy. We're not going to get you 15% returns. That's me. I will get you 15%. Then that's what we want to talk about. That's what we want to say. For individuals who are willing, to love. for people who are, for people who are interested in growing their ten to fifty million dollar right. who are still in the wealth creation, not just wealth preservation business. That's who. See the difference? We're narrowing this to something that can be dialogued. Dick, what about you? I'm selling to uh, by and large general contractors. So I mean, depending on the size of the firm, it might be the president or a larger firm, a uh, purchasing manager. Okay. So let's talk about the firms. How big are the firms? Well, they vary from Fortune 500 down to a uh, five or ten man office. Yeah, but who's your sweet spot? Somewhere between the two. Say the what have you been hanging out with Peterson too long? <laughs> <laughs> no. Let's say the I'm getting lawyer speech. Let's say the Fortune 500. 
All right. So for Fortune 500 companies, and what kind of construction do they want to be doing that you would do really well? They're doing, um, you know, corporate work or health care. They're building large buildings. How many square feet? 100,000. Okay. So for Fortune 500 companies who want to build buildings of greater than 100,000 square feet in the Pittsburgh area or everywhere? Mostly Western PA, yes. In Western Pennsylvania. Okay. That's, that's who you solve the yes. problem for uniquely. That seems pretty clean, doesn't it? David, last one. Entrepreneur startups. Ooh. So for entrepreneur startups in what industry? Um, metals at this time. We, we solve money in time. Okay. So for entrepreneurs in the metals industry and startups, okay, that's who it is. Is there anything too small, too big for you? Is there a range? Not really because entrepreneurs are kind of that way. Yeah. Are you looking for people who are going to have an ongoing relationship, meaning that we anticipate that they will grow and they will be repeat business? Yes. Right? So that's important for us to reference as well. So for entrepreneurs who are on a fast growth track in the metals industry and who will need cash efficient access to what? Equipment. Because right, because what you're selling, your answer is you're going to be cash efficient. So use cash efficient. Okay. Third, how do you solve the problem differently than your competition? This is always a challenge. Um, well, not always, but most often it's a challenge. I want you to, the, the cheat I use for this is unlike our competition, we what? Unlike our competition, we what? Let me give an example out of the construction industry. Big plumbing company uh, who plums hospitals. It's talking to us, and we're getting to this question. They're like, it's plumbing. You know, I could plumb your house. I could plumb that hotel. I could plumb that, that, that hospital. And the fundamentals of plumbing haven't changed in a couple thousand years or whatever. I mean, it's, it's just not that. We're like, well, what do you do differently? Nothing. We're, we're plumbers. Well, is there anything you're proud of? And one guy says, yeah, I'm really proud of what we do in surgery suites. So Why? So, well, I know some of the surgeons, and surgery suites have more unique needs than almost anywhere else, and you've got real prima donnas who are in the surgery suite. You know, when they say the guy wants to play God, that's the guy who's there. And they want it to be really cool in there. It's got to have everything that you need. We do surgery suites. That's what we do really well. I said, well, what benefit would people get from having a surgery suite? So we went and actually started talking to some hospital people. They said, oh, you don't have no idea. It's so hard to recruit good surgeons. Part of what you've got to show them is the facility they're going to work in. A great surgery suite lets me attract the top surgeons, which means I attract more patients and more expensive patients who stay longer in my hospital. So, having, so we turned around the dialogue to not being about plumbing. We turned it around to being about surgeons and why they would want to come to your hospital if it's plumbed. The only thing that we wound up having to make sure that they understood is you couldn't just plumb the surgery suite. You know, we'll do the surgery suite, but you got to get the rest of the plumbing too. Right? Right. And, and that was, that's how the messaging moved. That's how the messaging moved. So unlike our competition, we what? It could be 10%. It could be a little thing. In your case, Henry, unlike our competition, we what? Unlike our competition regarding what we provide in technology, 
Okay? Okay, as far as the quality and chemically, the chemistry mix of the product itself and the uh, application of creativity. As far as hairstyling is concerned and what the product will do for the hairstylist and for the consumer. Okay. So unlike our competition, we've actually engaged in the chemistry to make better products for both the user and for the hairstylist. Right. As opposed to just pushing bottles. Okay. We actually believe in our products. See where I'm going? Yep. Exactly. And that and that's see how tight that sentence gets to? I mean it gets to a very clear value proposition. And that's what we're trying to get to. So what's it going to be when I'm talking to him? You know, they've got some really good products. These guys focus on the chemistry. They're really, they're science people. As opposed to somebody who's just pushing me pretty box bottles. Alright? And finally, how much difference does your difference make? Now this is a tough one. Because you know that you have to do the Harvard hurdle, which is 8 to 14%. How do we calculate value? Value looks like this. On a simple basis. Like I said, there's a much more complicated formula. But value, which we know it needs to be greater than... Oh, just so we're clear, why 8 to 14%? 8% is towards your more uh, manufactured goods of which raw materials are a larger component of the overall product. 14% is towards your service uh, where, indeed, you don't have manufacturing. You have mostly labor. So that's, that's why it's on that continuum. It's kind of that, um, from a European standpoint, the value add, right? The value add component. So value equals the difference in price or revenue between me and what they're doing now plus their dissatisfaction with what they're doing now plus their trust in my promise. Or big idea. So how much difference does your difference make? Do you know? It's great if you've measured it and you say, you know what, we're 16% less expensive than our competition. We have a 21% greater success rate than anybody else. We're the number one in the marketplace, etc. If you can't do that, you still have to play. How much difference your difference makes is, is all the reason why somebody's going to talk to you. So, it could be we work with the only, only the largest firms and they won't work with anybody else. Companies like Microsoft, and or I always pick Microsoft because it's such an easy name, but things like Walmart and the, and the St. Francis Hospitals, etc., over the course of 10 years have consistently picked us as their number one vendor. It's whatever you can brag about that is either numerical or quantifiable or can be an affiliate to something that you've done, meaning a company that you've worked with before. The boat going downstream is always full. The boat going upstream is empty, which means nobody wants to be the first one to come work with you, particularly if you're a smaller firm. They want to be one of the group that's made that decision because that makes it safer. So we're going to take five minutes. I want you to fill out the four questions just as we talked about, and we're going to go around the room, and I'm going to want you to read your answers in this order. Two, one, three, four. Two, one, three, four.
So we're going to say, for whom do we solve the problem? What problem do we solve? How do we solve it differently? And how much difference does our difference make? Now, a couple of guidelines. Think to yourself, this should be under 100 words, right? Think to yourself, if it has anything with more than three syllables, I shouldn't be writing it, all right? Because it's got to be simple. It's got to make sense. And then finally, ask yourself, when I say this, do I think it would be provocative, compelling, and defensible, okay? And out of this, what you'll get is your elevator pitch. Not just for outside the building, but for in the building. When people fall asleep in my afternoon sessions, we do harpooner exercises. So it's harpoon up, harpoon over, harpoon over, harpoon down, harpoon a chair. That would be a good prop to bring up. Yeah, yeah. You wouldn't believe how much trouble we have on airports with that. <laughs> Just one of those things. All right, David. We deliver opportunities. Whoa, 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 whoa. For whom do you solve this problem uniquely? Oh, okay. You want to remember, that remember that two, one, three, four. Okay. But do you want it all like in one sentence? Is that what you asked? One paragraph. One paragraph. Yeah, and you don't have to ask the questions that I have. Just read the paragraph. Here's a piece I want you guys to keep in mind. This is the collaborative part. If you think this exercise is interesting and valuable to you, is it interesting and valuable to you? You're supposed to help him make that better. So, you know, I will help. I will help. But honestly, I believe that the collaboration can be better. So please go ahead, David. Sorry. Okay, we work with entrepreneurs in providing money and time-saving solutions, allowing them to realize savings of up to 30 to 50 percent. Okay. Thoughts? I think you'd be more specific and shorter. We work with well, entrepreneurs. Paragraph and right. But it's kind of words or less, yeah. yeah. You just missed a couple of things. What's the metals? The metals industry is kind of important. Yeah. Because, yeah, because I don't, when you say entrepreneurs, right. If I don't get to the metals, and I also don't know that you're really in the equipment business. You do this, but but by how? By by selling them equipment. Yeah. Right. All right. What else? Provocation. What type of metal entrepreneurs, perhaps? Fast growth or new developing right. or yeah. something. Yeah, the, the, the mm -hmm. fast track, we talked about that a little bit earlier. Right. Entrepreneurs who have, have a fast track or, or Strong growth uh, curve. Yeah, one, one of your one of your uh, selling points, David, is how much faster exactly. you get a milk that's what I was sure. driving for. Mm -hmm. David, well, that's what I said. They're money and time saving solutions. Well, the part that was really good is the last part, right? How much difference does your difference make? Thirty to fifty percent. Pretty compelling. Pretty compelling. Part of what we're looking for is when you get done with that pitch, you want somebody to start asking questions. Exactly. <laughs> if you gave them all the answers, they wouldn't have anything to talk to you about. Right. But we want to give them enough answers to go, oh, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. How, all right, okay, how do you do that? Right. Well, Henry? Well, we provide the, the high-priced or high-end salons and hairstylists who want to provide unique products for hairstyling needs or wants for their customers and for themselves.
unlike our competition, we what? Question. Brother, we already did this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unlike our competition, we focus on the chemistry of the product. Thank you. I that's step number three. Yes. Thank you. All right. How much difference does a difference make? In, ter in terms of quality, say a good 25%. Is 25% better? Better. Yeah, but I don't care. If I'm if I'm the if I'm the hairstyle salon person, what do I really care about? Are they going to buy the products and take them home, and am I going to make a bunch of margin on it? Are they going to come back and tell people this is the best salon in the world because they use great products? Am I going to come back? Right? How do I make money? I make money retailing people coming through the door. Retailing. So how much difference does your difference make? Is it's got to be related to the high end salons. Right. High-end salons pick us because their customers come back and recommend more frequently because of our unique products. Very good. Thank you. Come back and more frequently. Right? Retention. 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 It's three syllables. You can use it, but... It's a big word. Come back is so much easier. Dick? Okay, this is a tough one. Here we go. We solve the challenge. Well, two. Two. How do you solve the problem uniquely? No. For whom do you solve For whom? I was going to say the builder. We're solving the problem that you, the builder, has to construct the project in a timely and efficient manner. All right. That's, so his That's one of his challenges. All right. So but let's go back because we've already done. We've already, we don't have to resolve things that we've covered. Okay? So... What did we already say? For Fortune 500 companies who want to build buildings greater, 100, 000, greater yeah. than 100,000 square feet, we, we provide you the product in, in a timely and competitive manner. I mean, they're looking, number one, to buy this thing at the right price. That's their biggest, that's their biggest thing is the, is the contractor. They got to buy it right. Right. So we get them the right product at the right, at price. The right price, but most importantly, on time. Right product, well, right was, price. Yeah, I was saying it timely, efficient. Timely right. I know. Efficient. I'm just making it simple. Okay. All right. right product, right price, on time. Wouldn't there have to be some green element? Isn't it green certified? Yada yada. Well, yeah, they all, everybody does that. The whole country's gone green, so it's not it's even annoying. Yeah, yeah, but isn't that the privilege? But there is, there is a, uh, an element here that you haven't brought up that I know you've talked about, and that is the fact that uh, the way they operate, they can get a building closed in quickly enough so that they can work on the inside of the building, especially in the winter months. Well, actually, I said that's down to basically the difference. Is one so let's get to unlike our competition, we. Unlike our competition, we complete our work so that you could finish your project on time and save you money. I mean, that's ultimately what they're trying to do. Doesn't your competition claim that, though? Sure. I mean, one of the things about a competitive advantage is it has to be competitive and it has to be an advantage, which is kind of funny because if I go out and look at everybody's websites, we all talk about the same thing, people, process, experience, and technology. So what we find is everybody claims the same competitive advantage, so really the only competitive advantage is who's the best liar, right? Yeah. That's a problem. On the good, bad scale, that would be 
bad. That's why there's so much distrust in construction. So do you have a guarantee? A guarantee? Well, sure we do. But you know, as soon as you accept the contract, the whole the, the risk is on my shoulders. It's no longer the contractor's risk. Yeah. I mean, that's you know. So I better I better back it up with guarantee. So unlike our competition, we start knowing that we're going to be guaranteeing our work with financial with that with financial non-performance. Something. Well, yeah, that's why. Are I'm you doing exactly? I mean, with all these kinds of. Because you got to think about it some more. Well, plus, you have how many years of actually doing it to make it provable? Well, true, but so so does so do other contractors. Yeah, contract testimonials. Yeah, but so, do so how much difference does your difference make? Let's go. To the, let's go to that. Maybe maybe we've got something okay. there. So the the difference is we've got uh, we're using our own crews. We've got a tremendous amount of experience with XYZ University hospital group, and that builds credibility. Does it make a difference? Boy, the price has still got to be right. So, do you have longevity with contractors? Do contractors, do you have contractors you've worked with for 20 years? Certainly, but not every project. Don't tell me what you don't have. <laughs> yes, no. we have longevity. Okay. With major contractors. So that's the issue. Major contractors in this marketplace know us. We are the go-to firm and have been for 25 years with contractors like X, Y, and Z. That's how much difference your difference makes. Okay. Yeah, that's true. We're the go-to firm for the really big guys who are smart. You, Mr. Sophisticated Buyer, should be buying from me because other sophisticated buyers have. Idiot. No. <laughs> you should leave that one off, right? That, that, that's just implied. Right? That's just implied. Only if they don't close the deal. But could, wouldn't, wouldn't also he, because for example, the Console Energy Center was just open. They did all the work for it. Right. There's right. some real high credibility in terms of the projects that he's done. Yeah. I, I think that, that there's, um, that where I would probably put that is probably up under some things like um, business problems that you saw. For organizations that are going to have high visibility, high risk, big projects in communities, nobody goes anywhere but us. That's that's good. Because because why? Because they can't afford to screw up. No, they can't. That will be look look at the big ditch in, in Indiana, Indianapolis, the project that uh, the library sank. I mean, yeah. these are problems, and you know the firms that are listed are all, in essence, blackballed for at least a good period of time. Ed, what do you got? So, all right, so you're going to write that one down. If you're a high net worth individual, we provide the best opportunity to create wealth by using a time-tested, unique strategy in an underserved market that targets returns in excess of 20% per year. Okay. What's anybody want to tell Ed? The end of what you said, Ed, is the, the value that you're delivering. That's four. How is it defensible? Okay. How long have you been doing it? What's your actual return? That's a good question. Now I have an hour to tell you how. Okay. Well, and I, 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 there's two things about it that bothered me. One is, again, we talked about people with 10 to $50 million in assets. 
Let's define the market. Use it. That's what you solve the problem for. Him. The second thing I think that's important is targeted at 20 plus percent. In this marketplace, I've just spelled you out, dude. Because I, I cannot promise that by law. What can you say? Historically, firms like this have achieved. Well, you're a secure person. I don't have history. First time funding. So has anybody bought from me? Yes. How many? 20. Okay. Who's the underserved market? The companies we invest in. In the Pittsburgh area. In the Pittsburgh area. Yeah, where the West Coast and the East Coast are pretty well served. So, are you finding are you finding the diamonds in the rough? Yes. Okay. Well, why aren't we talking about that? Because how we do it different? Unlike our competition. So don't just say it's unique. Tell me what it is. We focus on the diamonds in the rough in the Pittsburgh area. Companies you haven't heard of, but you're going to. That are local that you wanted to invest in. Yeah, you could drive by them. They exist. We saw <laughs> Well, actually, no, one of them actually had a, a, a retail storefront. It looked like it was abandoned, except for the sign that was as big as a business card. Look, Last be brave. Be brave. Be provocative. Be provocative. <clears throat> we target. 20% minimum return and select firms to invest in based on that. Even if you can't say, I give 20%, you're at least under the, uh, how much difference does your difference make, explaining a methodology. Ray, what do you got? Yeah. CUSIS offers um, higher standards. Whoa, 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 whoa. Who are you serving, dude? Two, one, three, four. Acoustic serves national hospitals with higher standards medical transcription outsourced than software for your HIM department. Unlike our competition, we guarantee 24-7, 365 quality and turnaround time performance, which we proactively monitor and put in our contracts. How much difference does your difference make? That's a thing that we... Sold from day one, and we are unique in that regard and that guarantee. Okay. How many times have you had to pay off on that guarantee? Uh, twice, I think. In the <coughs> How many clients have you had? About 70 that we've been doing for a number of years. Okay. So you had to pay off twice on the guarantee across how many transcripts? I mean, my point would be. We have a 90-whatever percent success rate of accurate delivery, 24 by 7, 365. No one else in the marketplace can even touch it. Right? Yeah. Let's say it. Okay. Let's say it. That's where your number comes in. Because when you've promised the guarantee, I'm immediately the reason, what's the reason guarantee. The reason I back off of that is everybody in our industry says we provide 98% quality. We, we provide the turnaround times. And so what's unique is not saying those percentages, but agreeing upon what they are for you. Like, for example, we have various, we may have 15-minute turnaround times, 24-hour turnaround times to do this work. So it's tailored, tailored specific for their needs, 
and then we bill twice a this is getting into the detail, but we bill twice twice a month and we look at it twice a month. Uh, See, do you know what's compelling to me? What compelling to me is not the ninety-eight percent uptime. What's compelling to me is you were willing to pay on two. So my answer for you would be, unlike other people who will spout figures and facts till the cow comes home about their accuracy, when we have on such a rare occasion failed to meet our own standards, we have been willing to compensate for it. Now, is that provocative and compelling? It has been. Yes. So let's say that. Ian, what do you got? For the experienced or inexperienced mill manager, MCC can help you increase your mill's productivity. Central Fuel Casting confers several technical advantages and then enables any mill to roll 20% more steel with our products compared to other suppliers. That was pretty damn good, huh? <laughs> <laughs> you have to tell us that. I, 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 I actually told our sales force that. <laughs> oh, so you have practice, you cheat. No, I haven't, have not told our sales force. But you want to now, don't you? Yes. Yeah, he's going to get them to go out next. I just did. <laughs> well, if, if you had to pick something, if, if I had to be nitpicky, sure. yeah. the beginning of it is a little rugged. Yeah. Um, not the mill manager part, but when you get into the cyclical <laughs> casting and all that stuff. Now, would, would every mill manager know what you're talking about? Yes. They would get it. Yes. Okay, so institutionally, that's all right. Yeah, and you're It's a colloquialism, and it's, there you go. it's it's pretty well known in the uh, in in the steel industry. Okay. Anybody else have thoughts around that? The point is pretty damn good. Good. Or let's want you to rip everyone else apart. That wasn't the first. That wasn't the first attempt. I'll admit it. Well, I should hope not. Right? You know, I didn't tell anybody to stop writing. I've noticed that there are other people over here who've been thinking. I, I, I know Dan gave up. You know, by the time by the time we get to Dan, it should be a it should be a symphony. But, uh, Lee, what do we got? So we work with brokers that represent self-employed companies with 2,000 or more employees to provide turnkey government-compliant wellness programs that will match the individual corporate culture. Um, we personally service accounts is truly a wellness-based product, and we will address your corporate weaknesses by incorporating your strengths. And unlike our competitors, uh, it's the only thing we do, so we're truly wellness-based Cost-wise, design, the design of our program can be a cost-neutral experience, and it will always feel the way that you want it to. Anybody want to help? It's pretty long. Well, if you're on the Rivers Club elevator, plenty of time to get that in. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's part of the confusion. Is, is this a paragraph or is this an elevator? It's 100 words or less. It says, who do we serve, what do we do, what problem do we solve, how we do it differently, and how much difference our difference makes. It is a hundred-word paragraph of no more than four sentences that does that. I actually liked your end. I liked your end a lot because you did the... Actually, I liked your middle. You did the unlike our competition without saying unlike our competition. It was really... It was good. I mean, it was a, there's a piece in there. It was really long, though. Man. You know, the problem is, I think, I think you got the first part really good, and you got wrapped up in your, some of your features and benefits, as opposed to saying, you know, you know what the thing was cool at the end when you got to how much difference is our difference made? 
was the, I'm going to be cost neutral for you. You're going to get all these benefits and probably you're not going to have to pay anything for it. You know? I almost want to think you should put that up at the top. Meaning for companies, for brokers who sell to self-employed, self-employed meaning... Self-insured. Self-insured. I think you said self-employed. Self-insured. For companies who sell to, you know, for brokers who sell to self-insured, you know, look, I'm going to give you a product that's not going to technically cost them anything. So that's another good question for you. Who's your target audience? It's the broker, right? It's the broker. So you got to ask yourself a question. What does the broker care about? What business problem is he trying to solve? His business problem is what? Well, he's showing up and it's a 35% hit every year on the insurance premiums. So if we can go in and show them a way to not sell, not have to show that, so they can either have same benefits, well, it's the way that you construct the program, but they can either get the same benefits for, more benefits for the same money is how it ends up being. Yeah. Sort of. So what you're doing is what? Customer retention. Yes. So for you, for the broker, the problem you solve, so for brokers who sell the self-insured market, okay, 2,000 or more, okay, we provide a product line that offsets the pain of ongoing runaway health costs. Is that different? Yeah. Okay. So, and unlike our competition, this is all we do. So we're focused on wellness. And how much difference does our difference make? What we're able to do is bring these into programs, have you bring them into programs where you make a boatload of money, Mr. Broker, but your customer doesn't wind up paying more. Last shorter. And pretty common, pretty common language. Does that help? Yeah. Okay. Tom? salesiness in the answer, but I love the common speak that you use to get there. Makes a lot of sense. You got to do the thirty to fifty percent. You know? I would define the who perhaps better, just CEOs and owners. Yeah, we didn't see, see a size of company there. Or any distinction. Yeah. Yeah, that gets hard. I, what I like to focus on is manufacturing, but we, we have a banking segment, we have a what would the well be? How about we work with you? Two The whale. Too yeah, you my, my whales are, are 
privately held manufacturing companies that are not big enough to have in-house attorneys. Okay. That seems really like a great introduction. Um, and I'm not opposed to having multiple elevator pitches by audience at all, but you have to have one pitch for your company. So it's really valuable to be able to take these hundred words, put them on a card, give them to everybody, and say, memorize this. This is who we are. When you have a company meeting, ask somebody to recite it from memory. If they can, give them a gift certificate. Give them an iPod. Because we want everybody on the same page, so we're going to give them a page and tell them this is the page I want you on. The one you did, by the way, is broad enough to be corporate-wide. But you may in your pocket have, I really, you know, every one of your lawyers who made this a specialty, right, these groups, each one of them, they just change the intro. But the how you cook the soup different, pretty much the same, isn't it? Isn't that an institutional thing in your firm? That we take this approach and that we build this way, etc.? Yeah, that's one thing we tell all our young lawyers. You're always going to feel like saying no because it's your ass if the thing blows up. But if, the, if that's what you're going to say, we don't need you and the client doesn't want you. So they don't want to hear no, they want to hear. Huh. You told me I can't do it that way. Tell me how I can do it. The other thing that, that I actually got this from a client who, you know, the beauty of telephones telling you who's calling. This guy, he's the CEO. He's he's He's... First or second ring all the time, and one day he was laughing with me. He said, "Don't you have any other clients?" I've been using that in the shop. I've been telling people, "Have your clients feel like they're your only client." Absolutely. He was looking at his bill. Well, there was that too. Yeah. I do seventy hours a week out of you, Peter. Don't you have any other clients? So, good. Yeah. Difference makes sense. Paul. Okay. We help leaders in privately owned 50 to 500 million dollar companies develop a clear, compelling story that accelerates sales growth. We help our clients tell their unique story in a way that drives sales. Unlike our competitors, we ensure your story will deliver results before you go to market. Companies including BASF, GSK, and Pfizer have trusted us to tell their great untold stories. Awesome. You only have one sentence that's wasted in there. Okay, which one? The one that says, yeah, give me the first two. We help leaders in privately owned 50 to $500 million companies develop a clear, compelling story that accelerates sales growth. Second one? Uh, we help our clients uh, tell their unique story in a way to drive sales. Kill that. Kill that. Yeah, I kind of thought that. It's was redundant. Good. Yeah. But do you end up with storytelling, not in it then? What's that? Does the word storytelling disappear? Uh, no, no. Okay. I mean, the word stories in there. In fact, Lee, the word storytelling isn't in there. But well, I think somehow it should go back in. But yeah. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't think I have the word storytelling. Well, I think an, an, unlike our competition, usually unlike our competition, say that again. Unlike our competitors, we ensure your story will deliver results before you go to market. I want to know how. And then right after that, what did you say? Companies including BASF, GSK, and Pfizer have trusted us to tell their great untold stories. I somehow like the idea that unlike other agencies, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I spent years working for Rap Collins, yeah. uh, it's a large direct marketing agency, ran a sales worldwide forum, mm -hmm. and I like the idea that we start with sales in mind. Yes, it's not about 
cute creative. It's not about exactly. it's not about winning an award. It's about getting you a bunch of sales. Exactly. And I think that's it's not quite punchy enough in there yet. We start by thinking about how many sales we're going to make for you. Additional, additional new sales, accretive sales, whatever. Dan. I need to do a one-off on this one. Here's our shot. For companies that struggle with their talent management process, we provide scientifically validated instruments that add objectivity to a very subjective process of managing the organization's human capital. This allows you to reduce turnover, eliminate misfires, and create the requisite alignment necessary to maximize the profits. Our clients that measure impact report a minimum of a 10 to 1 return on every dollar they invest with us. In short, we fix your bus seat issues. 73 words. I like the last part. Like, not the... The bus seat? Um, that, I don't mind. The, the, um, I spent a whole day with Boaz yeah. to come up with, we fix your bus seat issues, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not giving that up easily. <laughs> <laughs> you ever spent a day with Boaz? You <laughs> will. But the who you work with is also not defined well enough. Yes, I agree. I don't like the word misfires. I think misfires. Pretty misfires. For 73 words, it feels more. And I wouldn't say minimum of 10, but I would say 10, or 10 to 1. 10 extra time. Yeah, get rid of that bus seat shit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this guy's going to come in and say, don't listen to Searson, man. You've heard him five times. You can't go after whales and never catch them. You should go after minnows. There's a lot more of them. Oh no! I followed. In this little thing here? I followed. Participating in this little exercise. I did. I followed a guy who who was not hundred. He was like a thousand. You need more prospects. Blah blah. Literally, I went month. I was the set, month one was them, and then month two was me. Wow, is that an interesting guy? I mean, it's been like, why is what he said? I don't care. He's wrong. He's not here. Right? I'm right. He's wrong. You know. So. <laughs> and then you, you know, I guess you're supposed to pout after that or something. <laughs> Hold my breath. Uh, so. Can I do one? Yeah, yeah, I can't stop you. Can't even slow you down. <laughs> so the top wasn't defined? For companies that struggle with their talent management process? Yeah, How big a company? Like, what industry? That's the travel agency across the street from my office that's out of business. Yeah, they've got a real struggle. Yeah. Like, there's some level that you work with. Okay. By the way, any company who can use the word talent management probably has more than 100 employees. Same with human capital. Yeah, they can use human capital. Yes. I'll take exception. The likelihood they say the word requisite, pretty low. But, you know. Full requisite out? Yeah, okay. Uh, we help. Hey, I'm shutting out. We help chief executives eliminate the feeling of isolation uh, by using a process that creates better leaders to make better decisions and get better results. Vistage companies over the past four years have experienced a growth of 5 to 15 percent, 6 to 15 percent uh, above the D&B national average. Uh, well, I know that. How big is that? Hmm? How big is the D&B average and how big is six, 5 to 6 percent? No, six to that. fifteen percent. Up to fifteen percent. Yeah, up to fifteen percent. I would just say DNB is negative. Right? Yeah, DNB is negative. Yeah. The um, there are other professional roundtable organizations. So unlike your competition, what do you do? Well, that gets into a lot of detail. I'm done. 
I've done a lot of these. You can do it. You can do it pretty simple. Well, um, we um, we do uh, individual coaching. We uh, facilitate think tanks, uh, and we have one of the largest speakers bureaus in the country. Okay. So right now, I think your strategy is good. It just suffers from complexity. Okay. Um, how big are companies? How big a CEO? What size companies? What size companies I got in this room? Anywhere from startup to uh, a couple of hundred million dollars. For CEOs and corporations that are under a couple hundred million dollars, or they're up to $250 million, we solve the problem of needing, actually, what do we do? We provide a peer-based, rigorous review of their business in a safe environment. It allows them to get board-level thinking without paying board-level fees. That one's new. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm working this one out now, see how it goes. Unlike our competition, we work individually, collectively, and with business expert speakers. The dumb gold tell us the same thing. <laughs> We're all of one mind. <laughs> we don't all hear the same thing. So unlike, unlike our competition, individually, collectively, and with uh, business expert speakers, the result of which is that Vistage Corporations, compared to the national average, grow at a rate nearly 15% higher. How about routinely grow at a rate 15%? Routinely grow at a rate 15% higher. Great weasel words that don't Absolutely. Every single one. Yeah. It means it happens more than once. Yeah. Good? Mm -hmm. Help. Super. Weasel words. I have one. Send that to uh, Qual San Diego. You should. You should. Look, I, you know, I'm just a guy. I don't, I don't talk to San Diego. <laughs> uh, this is a non sequitur, meaning that this. I, I changed this up a little bit, and I had no place to put it, but I would felt remiss if I didn't do it. So page 16. Why do big companies like to work with big companies? Why do big companies like to work with big companies? Peer. Peers. Sure. Safe. 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 What else? They use similar buzzwords. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They talk okay. the same language. Yeah. They move a similar pace. I'm sorry, pace? Mm -hmm. The whole company. They think they're low cost? Same issues? Pardon? They have the same issues? Yeah. Same issues? Similar problems. Now, why do big companies like to work with small companies? Right, you've all been small companies at some point in time, and big companies chose to work with you. Low down, high opportunities. Faster. Personalized oh, faster. Faster. Uh, nimble, too. Opportunities. Opportunities. Nimble. Cheaper. Lower cost. Different perspective. You know. Innovative. Yes. Innovative. Um, well, part of it, come on, is that they know they're a whale, right? I mean, part of it's ego, yeah. right? They say yeah. jump, and we say how high, and they say you're working on Saturday. We say Sunday, too, because I love you. You're my Right? Anything for you. Right? Yeah. All right. Again, if you get nothing else out of today, here's the important thing to remember. This is about fear. And this is about advantage. Greed. Greed is good. Greed is good. Thank you, Gordon. So, 
This is about fear and this is about advantage. When you show up and you're the smaller firm fighting against the bigger firm, which side of the equation do you talk about? The left side or the right side? The right side. We show up and we throw up. See, We're of the opinion that we're there because we've been qualified by them. We think our purpose is to probably win or maybe win. We don't understand that we're just a stalking horse. When we're the small guy against the big guy, we're not there because they think we're going to win. What do we know? 83% of the time it goes to the incumbent. Which means we, we step onto the playing field and we only have a one in six chance of winning. Whales cannot hear you talk about your advantage until you address their fear. Whales cannot hear you talk about your advantage until you address their fear. Something to keep in mind. Whales don't really have fear. People have fear. People have fear. So when do you have to talk when do you have to address their fear? First. Every time you meet somebody new. Because every person you're going to come into contact with who's part of the buyer's table is capable of saying no or not now. So we have to address their fear in a compelling way. Like I said, a little non sequitur. Let me ask you a quick question. What is a whale? What's a whale? Live off for a year. Something that can live off for a year. What else? Something that's what? Ten times elusive. Ten to twenty times your your annual average. Three to five percent of your total business. Something that will materially change your corporation. Who hunts whales? Everybody. Executive team, fast growth firms, village responsible for the whole whale. Who knows about the whale? The village does. The village does. What does a harpoon have to have? What does a message have to be? For it to be effective. Provocative. Compelling. Compelling. Defensible. Defensible. Great. Super. Thank you. We're done. I'm going to ask a question. I'm going to ask a question of what you got out of today, but I wanted to give you a chance to say that was great, Tim. Super. All right. What did you get out of today? If you only got one thing that you thought was really valuable, a thing that was most important, a thing that you're actually going to go implement, something that, well, Dick's going to want to talk to you about because you're going to put it on your action sheet. What did you get? Ten movements a week. Yeah. Ten movements per week. Pipeline reconstruction. So the whole movement pipeline. Let's, let's, see, let's, let's go around the room and get everybody's individually. So David, why don't you start? The, the pipeline um, reconstruction and the weekly sales report. I'd like Henry? Ten moves. Ten moves. Excellent. Pick away a number of things, but uh, one, pick your opportunities properly. Those outcomes? It address their fear before talking about the advantage. Right? The pipeline movement and also the four critical questions we want to ask. Uh, and call the process. Yeah. The four crucial questions and developing that uh, elevator. Great. That's good. Thank you, Bertus. Uh, the six cheats for asking to create uh, the greater question. 
thing that I personally take away from me was really looking at the buying table and where I'm lacking resources. Tom? I agree with the Burris. Uh, the six chiefs, I think, are great. I can use those. Paul? Can I implement the uh, pipeline and the 10 movements a week? Thanks. Okay. Baseline. The line that um, uh, below you don't pay commission on. Ah, the diamond. Yeah. Okay. okay. Um, two things. One, please fill out your, your uh, speech. First of all, thank you, Tim. The number you're looking for is five. Just let you know. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.